2: Your host,
0: two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil.
2: Hello everyone, welcome to another edition of Creek Devil. Today we're doing an update with Lisa, and Norm was joining us as well. Um, Lisa has some new recordings, some very interesting stuff, so... Uh, Tom, you want to kick this off?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, First thing I want to say is welcome back, both of you and Lisa. I hope you're feeling better. You're a little under the weather, we heard a couple weeks ago. So um, how are you doing? Well,
3: I'm doing much better, Tom. Thank you very much for asking. It's nice to be back, by the way.
1: I bet it is. I bet it is. Norma, how are you doing?
4: I'm doing great, thanks. How about you?
1: Very good, really, really good. Uh, I listened to your recording, and I got to say, that is very interesting. Um, and just a moment ago, I jokingly asked, well, gosh, why didn't you just go over there and check it out, see what all the ruckus was about?
4: <laughs> if it was me, I'd be going the other about?
1: way. What's that?
3: <laughs> Are we talking about Norma's recording or my recording?
2: Oh. Lisa's, uh, re- Lisa's recording.
3: That's my recording. That's Lisa's yeah. recording. Oh, okay. Uh, yes, I, camped, I camped out by myself. Um, very, very interesting how that started. Um, <clears throat> if I can really quick tell the backstory on that. Um, because of the puppies and being in an apartment, I had to uh, take the puppies back to where I used to live, um, right uh, next to that green belt that goes from my old research area to the golf course, that big swath of hundreds of acres of woods. Right. And, um, and it's, uh, it's ledged. So the house is on one level, and then there's a ledge behind the house and it goes way back and then another ledge. Every time I would take the puppies out, there's a huge lawn and walk across the lawn to the pen, I would hear a loud noise from the woods up behind the ledge. And by the third day, um, it really caught my attention. It was that loud. I said, hmm, it's a little bit too much to be a coincidence. I wonder if they're back there. So I took my recorder, and I didn't have my old black stony. I had picked up um, uh, a better recorder, an Olympus, which is silver, and Number one, I was hoping to catch something. And number two, I was wondering if the, how they were going to react to this new silvery
1: um, thing I was putting back there. Let <laughs> me stop you for just a second. Um, Lisa, did you just turn it on and just leave it somewhere in the woods? Yeah. You weren't. Oh, okay, so here's a question Did you put it down on the ground, like behind rocks or up in a tree? Where, what was the placement?
3: I never hide it. I have it on a string, and I hang it about three feet off the ground. Um, That's what they're used to. When I used to record down here, where I am now, where I got all the original recordings, um, that's what I did from the very start. Um, From the very first recording where the juvenile was making the monkey sounds and batting it around, and then he walks away bipedally, Um, I've always put it in plain view. Um, occasionally I would leave apples, but they would be far from the recorder and have nothing to do, um, no connection directly with the recorder. And, uh, I didn't do that this time. I just put the recorder up there to see if in fact they were back there because it was so coincidental every time I would take the puppies outside. The the moment I was in view in the middle of the lawn, there would be a loud sound coming from above the ledge in the woods that caught my attention. That was unnatural. And sure enough, when I placed the recorder back there that night, they were back there, but they were also very, very suspicious of this new silver recorder. And um, they would not, normally they would sit the juvenile at the recorder for the full 12 hours. And how I came to assume it was the juvenile was when I recorded down here and I would leave out apples, you could hear it taking singular bites out of an apple where it would eat one apple, maybe in three or four bites. It didn't just eat the apple whole. And if it was a full grown um, Sasquatch, I would assume it would just put it in its mouth, especially since there were small apples. And so when I put the recorder up there, I could hear them walking around, um, never close to it, and I could hear them breaking sticks, And um, but they were very, very leery of this silver recorder. So what I ended up doing was painting it black, and that made all the difference in the world, and that's when I decided to camp out, to go up
1: there. You said you, you sure. taped it? You taped it black? I painted it black. You painted it black, okay. And you know the recorders, those digital voice recorders, they usually have a little screen on them that glows? Um, does, I nope. Yeah. I,
3: with the settings, I turned um, all the lights off on it.
1: Okay. Oh, good. Oh, okay.
3: Yeah. All right. The Sony has um, a light that's on all the time, and I taped over it with a uh, piece of black tape.
1: Okay. I didn't
3: want any any light emitting from it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay,
3: that, that's how I've always recorded. Yeah, but they didn't want anything to do with this silver recorder. They, you could hear them in close proximity, but they, but they would not come close to it like they would the black one. Um, and that's all I got from that. But it, it uh, confirmed my suspicions that perhaps the noises were related and that they were back there. And then that's uh, yeah. when I decided to camp. I bought a new tent over the winter. So it was the perfect opportunity to uh, test out my tent with my dog. My dog was, uh, if my dog could have vaporized herself into another dimension, she would have.
1: She, she was, So she was, she was scared? scared
3: she was terrified the whole night of that recording.
1: Yeah. What was she doing? Tell us, tell us a little bit about her activity.
3: Well, she couldn't fit into my sleeping bag. Um, I bought all new backpacking gear. I have like a 90 liter backpack and, um, the sleeping bag I had was not a backpacking bag. Excuse me. So I had a downsize to lighten my load for when I, you know, do longer hikes and plan on camping out, you know, further back in the woods um not that this isn't further back this is about two miles at its widest and it goes the whole length of the road and dead ends at uh like i said a a golf course, and the other end it just keeps going it bisects a road down at the other end and then just heads up the mountain and uh intersects my trail and uh where I first started researching, where I found that big, that long line of tree breaks that I sent Will the first year I started, um, even looking for them. And I had sent them into Will, if he remembers.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely.
3: Yeah. So that recording was my first night of actual camping back there. I went back there and both roads, there's, the road that I was on, and there is a road on the other side, but that's that's about two miles as the crow flies through the woods. And it's a very, very sparsely um, populated area up there. The houses are very, very far apart. Some of them are a half a mile apart. Um, there's no activity. I lived there nine years. There's no activity at night. There's no... Partying going on or or any of that at night is dead quiet. so um, that night I put out two recorders. I put the my old black Sony closest to me, and I went out and bought some really nice big apples, and uh, I took a horizontal limb that had a flat side, and I set it between two forks. So it was up as high as I could reach where I could put apples on it. Um, We occasionally get bears, but I found that anywhere they are, there are no bears. So um, I had red apples and I had some golden uh, delicious apples and I set one red, one yellow, one red, one yellow. And if a bear messed with them that the limb would have fallen down If any critter had messed with them, you know, anything like a raccoon, it would have fallen down. And then I set the um, silver, uh, the painted recorder further up. And as I walked up, I found this very bizarre looking structure they made out of, uh, well, I'm assuming they made out of it. In the crook of two trees, there were probably seven three-foot lengths of dead tree about eight inches, no, excuse me, about six inches in diameter in a fan-like position where they put the logs in between the two trees and um, spaced them so they looked like a fan, if, if you can picture that. And then they set a dead tree, they dragged a dead tree and then set that on top of it. And I said, boy, that's pretty unnatural. <laughs> Nobody's back here. And there's this fan-looking structure with these big... Bro- and the logs were broken. They weren't, they weren't cut. And so that's where I set the other recorder. And all the activity that is on that tape is closest to me. They had taken the apples, or something had taken the apples. I, I hate to always say they they and you know like I know for a fact they did it but um and most of the uh, the loud close sound is from that recorder and of course the distant sound is obviously a little further off in the woods but
1: um Lisa I'm going to want to try something here so Will I'm going to play that sound I'm going to turn the volume way up and let me know if you guys can hear it, OK? OK. Here we go. All I got to do is get the uh, computer to cooperate. Here
3: we go. I'm not hearing it. No.
1: Oh, nobody hears anything? OK, hang on. I. Um, all right. I guess that was a bus I can hear it uh, loud and clear but okay hang on let me uh, I'm gonna try one other thing because I really want it's it's worth hearing all right so I'm gonna I'm gonna really crank the volume up of the gain on my mic I got the uh, all right and I'm gonna unplug my headphones.
3: Maybe if you lower your mic a little bit to get rid of the static, because I can hear it, but it sounds intermittent.
1: Okay, you guys there? Yep. yep. Okay. So, what I'm going to do is, I'm going to go ahead and um, let, let me, uh, while we're we're going to continue the interview, then I'll just work on this a little bit. So you said you could hear it, but it sounded, uh, was it choppy or? Choppy, yeah. And some, maybe the mic
3: was a little too loud. Okay. A little bit of interference. Yeah. Okay.
1: Well, I'll try it again, so.
3: Describe the sound.
1: Well, what I heard was this this screaming, um, yeah. this howling and screams, and then almost like a coyote barking. Uh, I mean, it was it was very creepy.
3: Yes. Yeah, I, I lived through it. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about.
1: Yeah, I, I'm being facetious when I say, gosh, why didn't you just go over there and check it out and see what the ruckus was all about?
3: I, I, <laughs> it's almost like I, shout. I, I, I literally held my breath. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it it gave me a new appreciation for uh oh, why don't you just go out there and uh camp out and, you know, right where they are because I knew right where they were and uh going back was um a whole new <laughs> I I don't know what made me go back, but I guess just curiosity. I I wanted, I wanted to hear more. I just kind of felt like they were doing their own thing and they weren't going to hurt me. They could have had me a long time ago. And
1: well, it's undeniable. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead. And then in a minute, I'm going to bring it back and see if I can get get a better quality for you guys.
3: Hey, hey, Lisa, in the meantime, yeah, can I just,
1: right. like, uh, how close were you to to these things? Because I know that you said that they that it was loud, but can you give our uh, listeners just an like an explanation well, or kind start. of elaborate on how loud they were?
3: Sure. Well, Norma asked me how far away the closest recorder was with the apples, um, and, and I'm terrible at, at guessing distancing. so. When I went out there the second time, I it off with steps and I counted 70 steps to where the recorder was in one direction and the apples were in another direction. And both times, that's where the recorder was, the closest recorder to me. So I think my step is probably a little less than three feet you know, walking through the woods anyway, <clears throat> excuse me. Cool. So if that answers your question, um, the second recorder is probably four, four to five times that distance up. Like I said, we're in a ridged area where you uh, everything is on one level and then there's a ridge that goes up and then everything's on the next level. Um, we're in a very rocky, um, mountainous part of the Catskills, so everything 's on a ridge, and there 's many ridges as you go up so i 'm um, a couple ridges up from the, the house, going back, and then the record the, the further recorder is another couple more ridges up, um, but further t- closer to the noise further away from me and closer to where all the noises are coming from. But unfortunately, that Olympus um, uh, is defective. No matter how high I set the audio on, um, it records at, at an extremely low volume. And I have someone who claims they can boost the volume on that because I have some really good stuff on that. And... Whether it's on my laptop or my phone, whether I listen in the car with the auxiliary cord, um, it, it doesn't help. So that I'm curious about because that recorder is is much closer to the noises. Now, how far away were they? Um, I would probably guess minimum a quarter of a mile away at the furthest uh I'm saying minimum and furthest in the same se- sentence. Um, a lot of the stuff that the audio picked up, I didn't hear with the naked ear. Let's put it that way. And I found that out by my second night of camping because yeah. there, I didn't. I didn't know there was a sentry up at the second uh, recorder, and he was there the whole night. I knew he was there in the in the wee hours because he did something very scary. He took one of those dead trees, and he started beating on it with both hands horizontally. Bam, bam, bam. And the force of it, I could almost feel inside of me. And it sounded angry. And then I don't know where he found a piece of metal. Well, there there are several places he could have gotten it from. But um, he started wailing this piece of metal on rocks, and there's rocks everywhere there. And it was a definitely a metal on rock sound. And that was probably 3 a.m., 4 a.m. But up until then, um, it had been very quiet. Coyotes went off um, probably twice around 10 a.m. And then they went off again about 2 a.m. And they were really close. And... Um, all three times I did hear them either before or not during, but or after the coyote house. So they they were mixed in there somewhere.
4: And that was the but second night.
3: That was the second night. Yeah. That I told you about. Yeah. They don't have that recording. I'm having problems with that recording, getting it off the computer, off of the uh, recorder, excuse me. And he was right up by that defective Olympus that someone says they can boost the sound on because I can barely hear him banging um, that tree. And it, it was scary, loud, scary, loud. That, that's probably what scared me more than them talking or howling because he was so close in proximity. You know, he wasn't a quarter of a mile away. He was just up the hill and he's banging with both hands on this big dead piece of dead tree just out of the blue so that was that was very frightening
4: i don't know lisa i think you did uh pretty well i'm gonna start calling you wonder woman (laughs) my new nickname for you
3: Maybe stupid woman.
4: <laughs> no.
3: no. <laughs> you know, it's so funny because around here, nobody thinks twice about it because nobody believes in it, but uh, believes in them. So, well, they take just, them with you. Think, they just think I'm the crazy camping girl. <laughs>
4: yeah, take them with you one night. You're change their that? Mind. Yeah. It is,
3: well, I told you, Mark listened to the that this particular audio, and he will not camp out back there with me now. <laughs> and and he's an on the fence non-believer. He claims he's on the fence, but he's he's really a non-believer. But I I think this might have changed his mind.
4: <laughs> well, if you took him up there, he'd fall off the fence, right on the right side. Yeah, I think he'd fall on the right side.
3: <laughs> he, he, he might have already fallen and just won't admit it.
4: <laughs> yeah, maybe he's just hanging on, you know, hanging on to the yeah. edge.
3: It's by far the most prolific audio that I've had in, ever. You know, they, they were just going and going. It was just when was, amazing.
4: When I was listening to it, um, you know, and I was hearing the... The, it sounded like shouting to me um yeah. you know like you were you were talking about Bigfoot speech right it sounded like you know at times it was really pretty powerful at other times it was a little you know more soft you know it wasn't as powerful um and from uh, you know when i first started listening to it i was like okay are those are those people doing that but then but then it would it it would do something where it was so much louder and so much more powerful and then i was like okay that can't be <laughs> I, I don't yeah. think the person you know um it was it was pretty interesting uh and yeah, i continued fine. you know to listen to it um you had to listen from the second hour you know on yeah. and there was there was a lot with especially with the speech going on and then I went into, you know, I couldn't stop listening to it, honestly. And it went into the third hour. And when it went into the third hour, there was, you know, there was uh, a lot of knocking going on. Often yes, just, towards
3: the morning, there was a lot of knocking going on.
4: Yeah, and that would make sense because that's about where it was probably like, what? maybe three o'clock to three o'clock in the morning
3: at that point no it was late it was later than that in fact um you'll start to hear the morning birds and they yeah, yeah. they go off around 4 a.m right it it's was so it was you know. prior
4: that that hour was prior to the birds starting to sing and okay, so yeah. then as i was listening into the fir- into the fourth hour um, because that whole third hour there was stuff going on. Um, you know like, like like I said the the knocking off in the distance about the same it sounded like about the same distance as where those um, uh, shouts were coming or yells were coming from. So it sounded about oh. you know that about that distance. and then something got a little closer to the recorder and was making some kind of different weird sounds I I heard a really good knock really close Mm -hmm. um and you know I, I don't know what it was doing it was it was something weird but this whole third hour was pretty interesting you know too and I went into the fourth hour and it started to um at the beginning of the first hour or fourth hour it's it started to slow down a little bit and then I I didn't finish the the rest of it. But it was pretty yeah. interesting.
3: What did everybody think about the goose in the middle of the night? <laughs> was that weird or what? Uh, maybe did somebody. The... Did you you heard the goose right?
4: Yeah. Or a goose? Yeah. A
3: goose, a goose out of nowhere, and we don't have any Canadian geese around, or or anything. No goose, no geese. (laughs) I thought that was pretty weird at like two in the morning, a goose in the woods, a single goose in the woods. That was a weird sound. Were you able to pick up the difference in the feminine and the masculine sounding? I mean, you you couldn't pick out words, obviously, but were you able to hear that? I was able to hear that.
4: Yeah, you could hear different octaves. For sure, yeah. you know, um, so if that, you know, if that was a male and female, then uh, yeah, the octave that I could hear, the, the changes in the octaves were, yeah. you know, were pretty prominent. And like I said, that yeah. more forceful sound, you know, I mean, maybe they yeah. were having, an you know, that happens. Yeah. <laughs>
3: Yeah, a lot of my recordings, I, I hear argue, what sounds like arguments, where there'll be a, a loud um, masculine-type yelling, and then you'll hear what sounds like a female, you know. Yeah. But um, the reason why I said start at the... Actually, a little bit before the beginning of the second hour is when some good start stuff starts. The reason why I say dismiss a lot of the first hours because I set up the recorders a little too early and you'll hear me. I'm talking to Rain, my dog, I'm fussing around the campsite, I'm doing stuff. And I just learned how to set the uh, recorders um, to start at a set time rather than just to start recording when I put them out. And when I, the woods get darker a lot earlier than You know, if you're out walking around, you know, on your lawn, it's a lot brighter. So, you know, I tend to my my downfall is I tend to put the recorders out a little too early because it's it's dark in the woods and I'm alone. So they they are out there while I'm still doing stuff. But now that I know how to preset the recording times, that won't happen anymore. You know, I don't want people to listen to an hour of me, you know rustling well, around, my can't
4: I think I started at about 55 or 57 um, yep. minutes.
3: That's perfect. Yep.
4: Yeah, and yeah, it didn't take. Something going on right around then. Right. It didn't take long after that when when I started to hear. You and know. And what the, amazes me is
3: how fast they come in on those recorders. You don't have to wait an hour for them to come in on those recorders within. Sometimes they're they're right on him. I mean, within a half an hour or they, they must be watching. You know, they're right in there on the recorder. You can hear them breathing on it, or you can you hear them messing with it. You can hear them tiptoe, you know, very lightly walking in, getting closer and closer.
4: Well, like I said, that third hour, uh, toward the probably middle to end of that third hour. You know, there was something very close to the uh, to the recorder. Yeah. There's, I, I, you know, was it a Bigfoot? I don't know. Uh, it could, it could have been, it. you know, uh, another animal or something like that. But um, there were some sounds there that, you know, were uh, <laughs> a, little, mm-hmm. a little off, I guess. Well, that's why I
3: said it at the height. I said it because sometimes you can catch them breathing. Or, you know, sometimes you can catch them, you know, while they're fussing with it or messing around with it, you know, they're not thinking and they'll go, (sighs) or, you know, they'll sigh or they'll breathe and, you know, not, they're not thinking and you'll catch that on the recording. And it's a little too high up for, let's say, a raccoon to, um, well, maybe not three feet, but you know, it's, it is higher than three feet. I'm trying to guesstimate standing up here. Yeah. I'm talking more shoulder height. I'm putting them at not three feet off the ground and they're just, you know, looped around a branch. But like I said, they're, they're always in plain sight because they're going to see, they're going to see me hiding something and, and I don't want it to be, make them suspicious. It's going to be they're going to see me doing it. If I act suspiciously, they're going to act suspiciously. So I put everything out in the open. You know, if I put apples out, I'm not going to set them right at the recording. I I made that mistake once when I first started recording down here and they wouldn't touch the apples by the recorder that 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 was too suspicious, I guess for them. So I just make sure to set them in a in a separate area. And um, but no, I found that placing placing things in plain sight and not hiding from them is for me has worked best.
4: Now the second time you went out there, you didn't bring Rain with you, right?
3: No, I was totally alone. No, I, I didn't want to put her through that. No, she slept the whole day after that. She was she was just terrified. It, it was too much for her. She was. She can pick them up in the woods like crazy. She, if we walk in the woods and they're nowhere around, she's happy-go-lucky. If they've been there, but they're long gone, and she smells their scent, I can't pull her off of it. She's so fascinated by it. And if they're in there, if they're in there, or their scent is too recent, she's, she's constantly on alert, turning and staring and thinking she's seeing something, and it's, she's having a terrible time. she wants out she just wants out. So she's a good barometer for what's going on.
4: In words, yeah, for you know, her though, it's pretty, it's pretty terrifying. I mean, yeah, it's terrifying would, for anyone. It, I mean, you're pretty you know, terrified. If I, have, if,
3: if I could have fit her in my uh, sleeping bag, you know, she would have been down at my feet. But, you know, because there was no room, it's not big, it's just a, a Small sleeping bag it's meant for backpacking you know and uh, there, there was nothing I ended up putting on you know in case I got cold a long sleeve shirt with a zipper on it I ended up putting that on and folding up the sleeves when I woke up her back leg was through the the front leg sleeve and you know you could tell she had been a, a wreck the whole night you know I can't I can't imagine
0: well that you know, second that
3: I, you didn't I, get would, that. I would doze off for you know a half an hour here or, you know, but.
4: Well, you didn't sleep that second night. The second night, no, no.
3: I made sure of it.
4: (laughs) Not to mention you were listening to all that stuff that was going on.
3: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But. um, Yeah, I'm planning another one. I just uh, now that I've got the recorders all figured out, and um, you may have to wait a little longer for your second recorder.
4: <laughs> that's quite all right.
3: Yeah, I just can't get this one to work. It's just yeah, it's just the volume is just dead on it.
4: That's that's frustrating when technology, you know, doesn't work for you.
3: Yep. I tried everything. The volume just, it just won't, it won't record on. Even if I set it at its highest level, you can bear, it's barely audible. But it It was a little bit of a, uh, you know, what's so interesting is the second night I went out there, it was except for the morning when he started banging, slapping or whatever he was doing to that log. That was, you know, I mean, he was close. He was at that second recorder and that, you know, that second recorder is, you know, I walk up to it and put it there. It's not that far away. And then banging that metal. I mean, that was the scariest part of, of the night. And, you know, I could hear movement. I could hear distant sounds. And for the most part I thought they were far off and then to hear on the recorder, you know, as low as it was, with earphones to hear that he was there the whole night was shocking and that it wasn't the juvenile. I could hear that, hear him breaking sticks and messing around and doing all kinds of things that, that, that surprised me the most. And I don't know if it would have been any different if I had the better recorder up there but the fact that he was up there as the adult, when the juvenile was there at the recorder, he's just a bum, bumbling and stumbling. I can hear him urinate. I can hear him eating apples. I can hear him doing just about everything. In fact, the first recorder I put out, um, he made a pile of sticks All you know, they were all the same size eight to 12, eight, like in the eight to 10 inch range, they were all pine. And he had a pile of sticks and all this bizarre stuff. But this is the first time I felt it wasn't the juvenile that was acting as either a sentry or, or whatever you'd call it up at that recorder. And he was there the whole, to find out he was there the whole night after the fact, that was kind of creepy.
4: Especially since we're so close.
3: Yeah, exactly. And then the noise he made, you know, out of the blue, that that smashing of that log with his hands, you could clearly hear two hands hitting the side of it, you know, and you could tell it was a dead, there's a bunch of dead uh, trees up there, you know, no bark, kind of just starting to rot and um, hitting those with both hands so forcefully. I, I could feel it, like the vibration inside of me, as far away as he was. You know, that scared me. That really scared me. It's almost I mean, like my a, shoulder was killing me, and I wanted to roll over, and and I didn't move a muscle for probably forty five minutes before I had the guts to roll over because it was it, it sounded it sounded angry, it sounded very angry.
4: Hmm. So that really base kind of feeling, you know, that you, oh, you yeah. know like somebody drives by you with their music up and you can just hear that kind of
3: exactly. That's what I felt. I felt it as far away as he was, I felt it. That's how hard he hit it.
4: That's crazy. And I could
3: just imagine I could just imagine these massive hands, the size of the hands it took to hit that as hard as he did. And he did it like three or four times. It wasn't just a single pow. It was like pow, 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 pow.
4: How long
3: did that yeah. last? It, it was brief. It was very brief. He did it, you know, just that pow, 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 pow. But then he got the piece of metal and started banging that for half an hour. And that was very unsettling because, uh, you know, when I went to pick up the recorder in the morning, I, I didn't see any metal. I saw some broken rocks um, all over, but I never saw a piece of metal. So either he took it with him or, you know. I was, you know, extremely groggy from being up all night and, you know, I, a little freaked out. So I wasn't in the um, search <laughs> search mode, so to right. speak.
4: You told me you didn't want to hang out there too much longer.
3: No. no, especially after the first night when I went up there the next morning after the first night. I found exactly where they were hanging out. It was all flattened out. All the sticks were broken. All the limbs, I call them pine pokers, all the dead pine branches that stick out. Everything was broken off to the 8 to 10 foot height. And the whole area there was just flattened out and was just full of sticks. And I could hear them breaking sticks constantly. And I asked somebody if they ate sticks like... uh, if they thought they ate sticks like gorillas do, gorillas eat sticks to supplement their sodium intake, but gorillas don't eat meat, so they have a, a necessity to do that. But why are they breaking sticks all the time? And I could see them. They're, they're breaking them into, you know, pieces that are under 12 inches long, and they're everywhere, and I can hear them breaking them. You know, I pictures that I had sent Will along with the tree breaks, the very first day I ever went out, and he said, yeah, those tree breaks, they look legit, but not those tree bends, and I hadn't sent him pictures of tree bends. What those were were in the background, and those were pictures of striped maples that had been bent over and the leaves stripped off of them, and because they were bent hard enough, it it must have um, destroyed the integrity of the fibers in the trees, and they never bounced back. And there's one spot, and I even heard them in one of the recordings sounding like they were eating something leafy, some leafy matter. In this one area, I've documented all these bent over, dead, stripped, striped maples, which isn't really a tree. It's an understory bush that's extremely, it's got these huge leaves that look like tulip leaves. And um, so I started doing research on those because, and on another property, I got permission to go on. When I walked in there, I heard three light rock clacks. So I circled around in a big circle and came back to where whoever was rock clacking was. And I found, uh, and I kicked myself for not saving, the saliva-filled branch. But I found where whatever it was was sitting with a broken branch of striped maple still wet with saliva, eating the leaves of it. And I found a mushroom about two feet off the ground placed in the fork of a tree. And I followed the trail of little broken pieces of, um, striped maple as they were pulled down to be eaten. And that's when I found the scat that was bright green that I had, uh, Saved and documented, which um, didn't make someone very happy to have in the freezer. <laughs> but um, in this one general area where it's full of it, it's, it's, it's an extremely important food source for ungulate, which I didn't know. And um, it kind of makes sense. It's probably the plant with the biggest leaf out there. It's very, um, It grows very fast. It grows in the shade of other trees, in the forest, in this area, and time after time I see big areas of it just stripped or even it can get large where the diameter is about three inches around, almost tree like. And I've seen them pushed over, I've seen them broken to be you know, to have the leaves stripped off of them. And I'm I'm sure it's not deer that are breaking them and To eat the leaves off of them. So.
4: Now you said the.
3: uh,
4: You said the juvenile. You could hear the juvenile breaking branches. Did you see a pile? Did you see a pile of them by the recorder?
3: Yes. Yes, there was a
4: pile of them by the recorder.
3: That's exactly what I saw. I found a pile of about maybe a dozen of them neatly, neatly stacked right by the recorder which I know I didn't do because I collect pine pokers from my father for his uh, wood stove. He's elderly. So he uses them to just quickly restart his fire. He has to stop and restart it all the time. He can't burn pine, obviously. Did Did I take take a picture? Yes, I did. Yeah, I did take a picture.
4: I don't remember if you sent that to me.
3: No, I didn't. No, my phone is, uh, needs to be cleaned up. It's, it's getting full, so it needs some reorganization. But I'm just finding so much evidence that that's one of the larger plant resources that's available throughout the summer. You know, it's not something that's just available in the spring or, you know, at a certain time of the year, aside from winter. So mm-hmm. everywhere I go, I, I see... Signs of it being eaten that's interesting down and yeah, yeah that I went out specifically I went when I went hiking um, before I got sick, I went hiking with rain to the spot where um I was trying to look for the mounds I was telling you about finding these mounds, these uh grave shaped mounds in the woods along along with the Holes I found it, it dug holes with no surrounding dirt near them that was very interesting but um, i never I never found the spot where it was at. I forgot, but um it is in the same spot where all these uh striped maples are, so I did document all of those hmm I'm going to have to start documenting those mounds. It's something, it's something I never noticed before. Especially in peculiar places. You know, they're not in areas of runoff that would, you know, push the dirt to one side. Because I have seen some that are specifically caused by that. You know, and this particular one was not. It was in a very dry area on, a high, on higher ground. That would be interesting to find multiple ones. All right. Did we lose the guys?
4: I don't know. No, no, we're still here. <laughs> They're just listening to us, you know, women chat. <laughs> we do this all the time, Will and Tom. We do this all the time.
3: Yeah, and found more eggs. Constantly find eggs in the woods. And what's very interesting, finding the larger eggs, is find, now finding the, uh, a pinhole on the opposite side and what looks to be like they use their thumb or something to, to, or stick, maybe a tool. be interesting to see if they use tools to open a, very, a small spot on the top. And when I lifted it up and held it, there was a, small hole I could see through so they could suck suck the uh, uh, liquid out, you know, the inside of the egg out. And what's interesting, when I went back there to set the first recorder, remember I told you the other day it was a goose egg? Maybe they have a pet goose.
4: (laughs) Well, you did hear a a goose. goose.
3: Yeah. Have you guys ever heard of that, hearing a it was a domesticated goose.
2: Ah, uh, I have it. In the middle known.
3: of the night. That, on that recording, if you listen to that recording, you're going to hear a goose go off in the woods right there. Not far away. It's right there in the woods. So uh, it's probably them imitating it, I would suppose. A single goose. You know, we, we don't have any uh, Canadian geese around for some reason. And it it wasn't a distressed, it wasn't a distressed goose. Like they came across a goose in the middle of the night to kill it. It was just a goose going, you know, honking. Well, we did get an angry apple.
4: Right. <laughs> what's that? It wasn't that far from the recorder either, was it? It didn't sound like it. No, it was
3: pretty close to the recorder. The goose starts, I don't know, honked what, twice, once or twice? One loud and one soft?
4: Yeah, I, I, I just heard it once. Yeah. doesn't mean that it strange. wasn't twice, just heard it once.
3: Yeah, that's strange.
4: Yeah, well, like I said, we had an angry owl the other night. So I don't, (laughs) it was an an owl owl or a real owl? (laughs) Um, it was a a real owl and then it kind of went into an angry owl and then it kind of, you could hear the owl in the background, but then you could hear this just really angry owl, (laughs) you know, along with it. So I don't know what that was all about, and it was pretty loud um, being that far away it was it wasn't really tremendously far away but being that far away. Um, it was pretty forceful, I guess. And
3: so. the first audio I took when I when I was taking the puppies out, and I kept hearing a loud noise every time I took the puppies out. and It got in my head. Maybe they're doing it. Maybe they're up there. Is it a coincidence? And I put the first audio tape out, audio recorder out, excuse me. Um, Mark, we always used to call the barred owls in because there's so many barred owls back there. And he's very good at it. You know, we'd get them fly right over our heads. And we'd always have a competition who could get them to fly in the closest before the jig was up. And... So on the recording, there's an obvious barred owl, real barred owl, and he's listening. I have him listening to it because I know what's coming, and mm. you hear oh, 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 and it's real, and it's going off. And then all of a sudden, you get one that's coming in that goes oh, oh, oh ha 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 ha, ha. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> and I said, "How's that for a barred owl?" <laughs> yes and, you know, it was just it was just another just another piece you know to to put in his mind that you know
2: that's more the, of a monkey the, sound the, you know
3: that what's that's
2: more of a monkey sound
3: yeah well that that's the point i'm making at first a barred owl was calling but then they started imitating the barred owl and they started putting a monkey sound in there and when I first had him listen, he said, oh, I said, listen to this. And he thought I was having him listen to them doing a phony barred owl, which at first it wasn't. And then when they did do one, he, he was kind of shocked to hear, you know, a monkey
1: owl. Well, those are the barred owls that drag their knuckles on the ground and scratch their armpits (laughs) and beat their chest, right?
3: (laughs) And for the the first time, I got tricked. Uh, I had a few people, including Norma, uh, set me straight. When when the Sasquatch that haven't bathed frequently enough come, come creeping into your recorder and they have flies buzzing around them, When a fly lands on your recorder and takes off, it can sound like them talking into your recorder. And I was convinced one of them went, ooh, ooh. (laughs) And I was so darn convinced that this this big uh, Sasquatch talked into my recorder only to find out that it was the sound that makes, a sound that a fly makes when it it's actually on your recorder and takes off. So now it's happened like multiple times you can hear them creeping in and you could before you hear the footsteps you start hearing the flies buzzing around have you ever had that happen norma oh you don't with the, no. No, you don't put the recorders
1: out
4: all right we're usually listening live with the the, yeah. with the occasional you
1: know what that makes me think of guys yeah. what? remember peanuts the comic strip. Yeah, oh yes, who's who's that? The Pig
3: one pin. that.
4: Pigpen, right? Wah, yeah. Wah, 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 right. <laughs> yeah. Walks
3: walks around with the uh, eternal yes. shirt. Flies around him, yeah. Flies around, yeah, right. not it, it? So I've had that happen several times now, where I can hear boo,
1: boo, boo,
3: and the, and at the same time hear steps coming in like
4: somebody needs a bath kind of funny yeah we we hear occasional you know uh mosquito buzz by but since we don't have the recorders hanging or at a distance which eventually we we probably will do i'll probably set one up and just leave it and you know come back and get it again the next day Oh uh, yeah. uh, God! The
3: first time you get something on it, you get you get hooked. You get so excited, you get hooked. <laughs> Why, especially if you've been boots on the ground and you know you. you I mean, you do get re- you do get recordings because you have the U two, and you know you're in close proximity at your research site. Where, you know, yeah, to
4: get audio. Yeah, get you know attached to the the recorders. <laughs> yes. so if anything comes really close, uh, you know, they grab us and the recorder. So that ought to be a good. <laughs> <fun>. <laughs> We're always telling you know Tom and Will that we don't want to be a sacked lunch, but
1: <laughs> oh, that goes for all of us,
4: right? <laughs>
3: Yep, I, I'd be a liar if I didn't think about the, the term sack lunch every time I or burrito when I get into my sleeping bag. From thanks to Will and you guys.
4: <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, kind of. Uh, you, you bought some new. I'm just really curious. You, you bought some new camping equipment, Lisa. Uh, yeah. What? What was? Do you know the brand of the uh, sleeping bag and the, and the tent?
3: Yeah, I didn't go really um, expensive because I'm not, you know, the amount of time I use it. I bought a Pacific Trail.
1: Okay. Oh, good for you. Yeah.
3: Yeah, Pacific Trail um, uh, tent and sleeping bag.
1: Have you ever That's had it too. in rainy conditions? Well, it's, it's, um, it,
3: it's meant for three seasons. It's, uh, the bottom of it is like no other tent I've had. It's made for snow. I mean, it's totally waterproof, the bottom. It's super thick. It's not nylon. Um, you could easily camp in the snow with it.
1: Oh, okay. It's, um,
3: it's, it's like the thickness of two tarps, the bottom.
0: And that's yeah. the only
3: downside is um, that adds a little extra weight to it. But to me, that's so worth it. And it's got two doors, which is something, you know, I've had a tent. But to me, having two doors is... Really important. She needs an you know, escape. Some, <laughs> escape hatch. <laughs> right. <laughs> I. It, I just it, it. felt too. Um. Like entrapping. Like. Uh. I didn't want it, that feeling of being entrapped. You know, having the two doors and it. And what's really nice is the. Uh, not the fly, but. Yeah, the fly extends so that you have like a big foyer outdoor covered area. It's very large. So you could, you know, actually have a chair under there if it's raining out. You could be outside under the, you know, if it's raining out. It's got a lot of great features to it, aside from the two doors escape hatch. You know, if something's happening behind me, I want to be able to know what it is. Absolutely, and, you know, that's a good point. Yeah. I well, also want
1: to comment about the hanging. You know, you you go out and you don't try to conceal the fact that you're putting something out there. And do you think you get better results absolutely. by letting them know that you're? You know, they can absolutely. watch you.
3: Absolutely, I do. I have do you tried it the other way? I have. And? and it's tot- and it's totally ignored and they act like nothing's there and go about their business. And it's as if I never put a recorder out there.
1: Okay. I mean, but do you catch anything on the recorder?
3: Um, only far off stuff. They, they don't come in close to investigate. They don't want anything to do with it. They don't, um, um, here, when I don't hide it, they always come in to interact with it. They always have something, either the ju- usually the juvenile near it. Um, they always come in close. Now, whether that's uh, my personal feelings and a lot of people might disagree, but I think this is the same group going back to when. Five summers ago, I first went out there, found the tree breaks, and then found that bush and had the tongue popping going on and then the whistling going on. And I think it was because I was between the mother and the baby. I think that's the same juvenile, the same group of four. There's an older juvenile, which I believe is the one I saw, the gray one. And that would make the the youngest one five, maybe six. Or I don't know how old, you know, they would keep him hidden to, him or her hidden to, um, concealed while they go out and do their business. Um, But at the very youngest, he would be five if he was a year old or less being hidden like he was in that bush. And I know of nothing that makes a nest like that. Sure. Um, Nothing. Uh, Coyotes dig dens. This was not a den. It was just a flattened dirt area, which is what they tend to like, a flattened, cleaned out area. Um, and there were definite tongue pops coming from there to a very loud whistling entity over right, a gun right. shop near the gun
1: range. Lisa, um, quick question. Um, I think you were the one, I apologize, I'm kind of shifting gears a little bit here, but you had a, um, I think you you had a situation where you'd spoken with uh, one of the state troopers about Mm -hmm. this topic. That's me. Yeah. That's you. Okay. How far from the, where the state troopers are to kind of where you were camping out and you caught this latest recording? Okay.
3: That's totally different area. Um, the state troopers are where I live now. Where I was camping is where I used to live, up at the base of the mountains.
1: Okay, so this latest, yep. the latest recording is at the base of the mountain? Yes. Okay, In that green okay.
3: belt, behind the ha- stone house.
1: Yeah, right. Oh, in- that one. Okay.
3: Yeah. I wasn't sure expert. if that
1: was okay have you yeah. spoken with that trooper since that that initial time no, you spoke with
3: him no he was supposed to get back to me he, he had left me a phone a voicemail that uh he wanted to talk to me and uh he never called back so i didn't
1: pursue it yeah I that was still very it, interesting though wasn't it
3: it really was interesting it really was interesting very. That The fact that um, he took it so far, you know, with the report, with wanting to um, see the photos, uh, as you said, with the double negative, he said he didn't not believe. Um, he kept pursuing it, the issue with me. You know, he called me, he gave me his email address. Um, we spoke several times on the phone, um, at his, you know, initiation, not mine.
1: Right. So,
3: and I, and what, what was interesting of all to me, which I never mentioned to you was,
1: um,
3: he mentioned something about now they can, he can see them now. He'll be able to see them. I said, Oh, you'll never see them. And he said, now that I know where they are, I will.
1: Oh, really? So he said. I
3: didn't know if that was nefarious or just the fact that maybe he was naive enough to think that because he knows they're in the woods, he drives by every day because he has to go up that road off of which all that wooded road off of which all the recordings I took were on.
1: Yeah, no, that's very well. If you, if yeah, keep us updated if you.
3: And I don't know if they're police business or not. You know, used to see helicopters here. Okay. Well, keep us
1: updated if you do. You know, if you kind of regain contact with them. uh, You know, especially about the topic. Yeah.
3: Definitely. In fact, I did stop by one day, um, maybe a month ago, and because I know he works weekends, but he was doing, it was more than a month ago, I'm sorry, it was the tail end of spring ski season, um, and I know that because he was up, uh, they said he was up at uh, Hunter, they, on the weekends they, they make their, they, they uh, give tickets out to all the out-of-state skiers, all the troopers are up on the mountain. On the weekends, giving out tickets to speeders.
1: <laughs> oh, they're not—they're not, they're not giving that. tickets to the ski lift. Okay, I get yeah. you. All right. To the
0: skiers. <laughs> yeah. Right.
3: I, I've skied at that mountain since I'm, you know, four years old. So I know—I know how it goes.
1: <laughs> right. Well, I—I uh, yeah. I, I was being facetious, of course. Lisa. And Norma, as always, it's it's an absolute pleasure having both you guys on, and I'm really excited about this audio. I'm going to see if I can clean it up, enhance it, and at some point we hope to be able to post it on the website.
2: And um, absolutely, I also yeah, I also have a professional in Hollywood as a friend that's working on it right now too.
3: Yeah. Oh, that would be amazing. Like like I said, someone. Um, Someone else who uh, does a lot of recordings said that, said, uh, in quote, this is a very important recording as far as Sasquatch um, speech goes, as far as, you know, other than just screams and.
1: Oh, it's undeniable.
3: Absolutely. So. Yep.
1: If, if, you, fact, if you run into a situation like this again, see if you can take a uh, video of your dog. That would be interesting to see uh, her reaction. You know, we hear oh, about okay. it all the time. I don't know that there's a single video out there, you know, where people, they have to use their imagination to, you know, it's not hard to do. But, I mean, it would just be interesting to really I might see.
3: Have one. When I was out in the woods one time and she was freaking out, I might have taken a video of her. The way she was behaving yeah i might actually have one not not under the circumstances we're talking about but while out in the woods
1: um, well if you find just, it let us know we'd, we'd be really curious i will
3: see. i will yeah most definitely and like always it's an honor to be asked on your show
2: all right everyone Oh. Always. lisa norma we always appreciate having you guys on we're just about out of time so uh again thanks for the update you know keep in touch let us know what's going on and everybody stay tuned for the next segment mm-hmm. welcome back from the break everyone uh we're going to do the q a today folks in a little bit different directions so tom you want to start off
1: Yes, absolutely, and uh, we got a real good lineup today. We have some excellent questions. Uh, we had Cody on. Uh, Cody and Larry Batson uh, were on, and that was just uh, episode sixty-four. And uh, you and I communicated with uh, Cody. He's uh, he has a, a background, professional background, working with uh, baboons, uh, monkeys, vervets, and and uh, wildlife. Um, and I, I believe he's also been an educator for the uh, uh, Wildlife Service. So we sent him some information, and we sent him some pictures on one of our past episodes. And this is the this is an episode uh, on an elk hunter here in Oregon, my home state. So the questions that Cody has, uh, and I'm going to have to post these on the website, so this will make sense to our. Our audience out there and i gotta say well when you sent these to me i'm thinking these are the most dramatic pictures i've seen you know it it's a visual documentation of what we know that these creatures do and this is the, the short version is what happened was <clears throat> this uh this gal down in southern oregon her father was elk hunting. He shot an elk, and he calls his daughter and says, I need you to come out here and help me bring it in. And my understanding is it was less than 30 minutes before, because she was close by, they, they showed up. They went out to retrieve the elk. And there was <clears throat> a very, very, very little left of this elk. Something had field-dressed it, taken the hide off of it, and remove huge portions of the elk. And if you've ever even talked to somebody, you don't have to have done it yourself, but if you've ever, for example, done deer, you know, if you've gone deer hunting, um, if you field-dressed a deer which is considerably smaller than an elk, it takes a long, long time. It, it typically takes hours to get it fully field-dressed. This is done in 30 minutes or less. So that's the backstory. All and right,
2: I, and I think he was he was disabled, so that's why he called for her. He sat down on, on a rock or a stump or something and had to wait, and it was within thirty minutes.
1: Yeah, that's correct. He had a actually, I believe he had a special permit uh, for disabled people for a special help permit, which I th- found interesting. I thought that was really nice. Um, <clears throat> okay so let's uh, we're going to go through this Cody here's your questions uh, he says the, the photos are definitely interesting um, any thoughts as to why they have taken the head
2: you know that's a good question um, I, to be honest I'm really not certain why they would do that um, except uh, it's possible that you know, the brain contains, um, I think, I believe it's more calories than, you know, muscle tissue. So, uh, don't quote me on that. I just have to check that, but I'm pretty sure that's, uh, the case. So it's possible. Maybe that's what they did that for, uh, temporarily. And we're planning on coming back another time, you know, for the remainder.
1: Right. And, um, you know, I'm just going to comment real quick that there was an area that uh, I, you and I have discussed, where, an area where, I've, where I'd gone into, and I found a, uh, the skull of a deer, a full fully preserved skull, excellent condition, bleached, antlers were, I believe it was probably a six point, and it was uh, fully intact. And yet it was just sitting by itself in an area that is completely inaccessible. As a matter of fact, there wasn't even a trail. A bunch of us were just thrashing uh, through the brush for quite a ways, trying to get to an area where we could get to, uh, you know, we're picking some wild berries. And I saw it um, just sitting there by itself. And so you had mentioned a very likely scenario. Which is baiting.
2: Yeah, and um, you know, occasionally they will do that. They'll put some object out to either draw, now, in like the case of uh, animal kills, and we have pictures of, you know, deer hung up in trees where they will draw other more animals in. In other words, they'll, uh, you know, exponentially increase their chances of eating because they're drawing in more animals than just the one that they killed. So it requires less energy for them to do the hunt, uh, while maximizing caloric intake.
1: Right, right. So that makes, makes a lot of sense. And that kind of, um, I think that sort of fits into the area that we were at because, again, I found this skull and it was just by itself and there were, I mean, there's no hide, no bones. Uh, Usually if you find a skull, you know, you're going to think of it as having, you know, maybe some uh, some residual um, you know, fur on it but now there's nothing. So, interesting. By the way, the, the episode that we're referring to here is on the witness of the unknown. So it's on the William Jevnine webpage, maybe uh, three-quarters of the way towards the bottom. The title is Bigfoot and the Elk Hunters.
2: That's on Uh, the YouTube channel, right?
1: Yeah, that's on the YouTube channel. I'm going to post the link on our webpage, and I'm also going to post those pictures up there as well, so everybody can get, uh, they can see those dramatic photos. And they are dramatic, (laughs) Very much so, and again, I want to emphasize uh, what you what you had said. And that it's it was done in thirty minutes or less. It was done a very short amount of time, virtually impossible for people, for a person to do that, and, even a team.
2: And I think they said there was no other. There were no other people up there.
1: Right. there's nobody else up there. Two interesting interesting uh, aspects of those photos, and one of them is. Uh, it was probably a picture of her dad. We don't have faces just, but he's holding part of the elk leg. It has been snapped. It was not sawn off. And I thought that was, that's very telling, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Because if it was people doing it, they would have cut it.
1: Right. And you try to snap an elk bone. It's like trying to snap a, uh, a, a cattle bone. It's just not going to happen.
2: Well, especially and, in a fresh kill, you're not going to do it. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, but also one of the other pictures really does look like, um, you can see where they you know, in the dirt, there appears to be a, 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 like a footprint with some, with some blood on it.
2: Yeah. And she had some pictures of tracks in the snow as well.
1: Yeah, taken in the same area, obviously at a very different time uh, when there was snow on the ground. So that kind of sets a precedent that the creatures have been in this area before, and obviously for good reason.
2: If I recall right, there were other people having sightings in the area along with with her and her family.
1: Yeah, she did. She had mentioned um, it was actually, it sounded like it was becoming a growing problem. And, and that neck of the woods.
2: Right, right.
1: Which I would have to agree. Uh, one big foot on my property is one too many. More is just that much worse, right?
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs>
1: um, okay, so getting back to Cody. Cody, okay, so you're asking why did they take the head? He said that part perplexes me. Then he goes on to comment, he says, mammal brains are mostly fat and really high on the cholesterol, but they do, do contain DHA and omega fatty three acid. Is that nutrient important enough for them to expend the energy needed to get inside the skull?
2: Well, with them, I don't think it'd take a lot of effort to do that, but, uh, it could very well be in, you know, in the animal kingdom, they're going to go for things, um, that are easy. A lot of animals are go after things that are easy, but these creatures aren't necessarily concerned with that because it's not as hard for them. Uh, so they're going to go after things that are of high value first.
1: Yeah. And they have incredible strength. I mean, you think of the breaking strength of a three and a half inch live tree that they can just grab and snap. And I've even seen larger trees that I was pretty sure that they had snapped.
2: And the prob- i are like, Oh, Right, and they're probably going to eat skull and all anyway, so it's not an issue.
1: Yeah. Um, Okay, so Cody, you go on and you mentioned, you said maybe it's the tongue and the eyes. Uh, Looks like they took the legs, which makes sense. So we sort of, you you touched on that, the eyes and the tongue. Um, Yeah, that's... uh,
2: But it is also possible that they were taking the skull for baiting purposes. We we just don't know. Exactly, right. What we do
1: know is there's no skull. um, And, you know, that's it. Okay, so he says Cody goes on. He says, I assume the bones were broken and not cut, or they wouldn't have been suspected, or they wouldn't have suspected something other than people. Right. And we confirmed that because one of the legs is being held. Clearly it was snapped.
2: And she did and talk that is... about that in her emails too.
1: Oh, she did. Okay. And
2: when we spoke to her, she said they were broken, not cut. Yeah.
1: And so if you had no other evidence other than a leg that had been not just broken, but snapped clean off and not just the bone, which has an incredible strength, um, But the skin around it, I mean, it just grabbed it and snapped it like a toothpick. So you don't have shreds or anything like that. Um, I would think that 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 stands on its own as some pretty uh, compelling evidence. Okay. Uh, Was the skin ripped, torn, or appear as if a tool was used? Was there any tool use? He says it's hard to tell from the photos, do we know if they took any of the internal organs?
2: Ah, uh, that's a good question. I was just looking for the pictures. <laughs> I believe she said the hide was pulled off or there was no evidence of any sort of tool use. Um, and I don't recall without going back and listening to the episode about the internal organs...
1: You know, and I think we've talked about tool use with these creatures in the past. It is, and we've talked to John, our anthropologist, who said um, it would just be really astonishing to have a primate, any kind of a primate.
2: Yeah, you know, when you look at these pictures, it's it's a real mess. And you can see, um, boy, I, I don't even know how to describe it. I mean, folks will just have to see it on the website. But uh the gentleman there i don't think that was her father that was either a husband or boyfriend or something that was with her or or a brother i I don't remember uh but he's holding one of the elk legs where it's snapped off and he's standing next to the corpse which is you know it's pretty obvious that's um the hide was pulled off um i don't even know how to describe you know what's laying there You, you have to see it for yourself folks
1: right and, and, again, I'm just going to go back to if you've ever skinned a cow or, or an elk or, or a deer, you don't just pull the hide off. You have to uh, work it off with tools, you know, with a knife. And, you know, it's pain, it's, it's time-consuming, painstaking. Uh, and it's, again, I'm just going to go back to the time frame. It's not done in 30 minutes. Um,
2: no, very true. It's, it takes a while. Yeah, there's a lot
1: of brute strength involved with whatever did this. Um, now he's asking, was this a bull or a cow? We don't know.
2: No, I, I don't re- recall if she said, she may have, I, like I said, it's been a while since we interviewed her and I, I really don't remember.
1: Yeah. And we may have to refer back to the, um, you know, to the Oregon, um, hunter synopsis about. You know, whether you can take a bull or a cow or, you know, what time of year it was taken, because you need a special tag, I'm sure, for cows. Yeah, right. Um, But Cody, uh, yeah, those are some really excellent questions from a very, uh, uh, not only observant, but somebody who has a background in wildlife. So um, he says, sorry for the onslaught of questions. Not at all. Cody could have given us a lot more. We'd been very happy with that. He says, thank you for sharing. And um, excellent. So, uh, and again, I just want to comment. This was, and you'd probably agree, this is like one of the more dramatic set of photographs (laughs) we've received on this topic, right?
2: Yeah, we we don't usually get things quite like that. You know, and then she has um, photographs of footprints in the area. Um, that are pretty obvious as to what they are.
1: Yeah. And I'm looking at the one right now with, uh, it's, it's immense. I mean, with somebody's...
2: With the boot next to it.
1: Yeah. I want to comment, this is just my opinion, I'll get your opinion on, or ask your opinion. What appears to be claws at the end of, end of the toes, um, I suspect probably, if you look at it, it, it kind of, you know, it does a heel down or not a heel? A heel up, balls down, walking. Mm-hmm. Um, in other words, I guess that's a long-winded way of saying I don't think these are clawed.
2: No, it's just creatures. It's just as the foot's moving through the snow, it's a drag off the toes. Yeah, I think yeah. there's a different term for that, but it's just you know, as the foot's lifting up, um, you know, material is being kind of launched forward a little bit. It it lends
1: it, it makes it look a little scarier as yeah, it if does. Yeah. as if it's not scary enough.
2: <laughs> yeah, you're not not really getting clear toes. Um, you know, I'm sorry. I'm looking at a number of these photographs. There are other ones in that series that aren't quite like that. I mean, they're they're much larger, and and it looks like maybe there's they're not real fresh tracks.
1: Right. Well, you know, we had, uh, I don't remember his name, but we had a gentleman up in uh, Canada who, he also, I think he had, he worked either in the Forestry Service up there or or maybe the wildlife. He had some of the best pictures I've ever seen of footprints in, like, silted mud. Do you remember that guy? Oh,
2: Dan, right. Yeah, Dan. Dan, yes. Dan's, Dan's photos, they were very fresh. They happened within minutes after or he took photographs minutes after they happened or uh, were left there because he, the creature was there um, and he was able to photograph those right away. And, and actually, the thing actually whistled at him and did some other things. But, yeah, those are, I, I think they're the best tracks I've ever seen.
1: Yeah, and as if I recall, I think those also had kind of a uh, little bit of that claw-like, um, and it's just the way the foot push down on the mud
2: um actually these tracks that's I, I used one of the photographs one of dan's photographs on the cover of my book notes from the field and they they're very rounded prints There aren't really any uh indicator anything that looks like claws in them in the sand there
1: okay all right
2: so stand corrected there um
1: so very interesting, and uh, again, I'm going to put a link to this episode, and because <clears throat> I think it's worth it's worth a listen. It really is. It's it's pretty dramatic, especially towards the end where she talks about um, some of the stuff going on there in Southern Oregon, where where there you know it seemed like the population was growing and becoming. I think bold.
2: Yeah, exactly. It,
1: and that sounds like uh, Northern California as well.
2: Yes, absolutely.
1: So, same creatures, same disposition. They don't know that there's a border between the two states. At least I doubt that they know. No, that. I,
2: I don't yeah. think so.
1: Maybe they read. You know, maybe maybe they get on I five and look at the sign and go, oh, "All right, we're coming <laughs> into Oregon now," or vice versa.
2: <laughs> and, and you know, I've mentioned it before that. Um, you know, Renee DeHinden told me once that uh, the Patterson Sasquatch, that creature's footprints were found up around the California Oregon border in 1980. And that was the last time anyone saw any prints from that particular one because, you know, tracks can be identified, you can identify individuals by their footprints. Uh, there's enough distinctive features between feet, which is also true in humans. Uh, where you can identify an individual and, and that individual had been identified there in 1980. So yeah they definitely move around those regions.
1: Well that that's a excellent point and that kind of segues into my uh, the next questions we have and that is are there enough distinguishing differences between the foot tracks from the four basic, uh, group types, the types 1s, 2s, 3s, and
2: 4s. You know, that's a good point. I've looked at a lot of footprints over the years uh, from different regions, and there there was noted, I should say, by, uh, I know one of the people was John Napier, who was a British anthropologist um, in the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s, who was working for the Smithsonian at the time, and in his book he talks about um, some footprint morphology, and and he felt that there were two distinct varieties of these creatures because uh, of the particulars of their footprints. Uh, One they they named an hourglass type, the other one they called it a human-like foot. Um, And I guess we'd have to put some pictures up you know, to show those differences, there are not huge differences, but there's enough to where you could say, okay, this belongs to one group and this belongs to the other group. Um, and that's what I was told through my sources that, uh, there were two main groupings with, you know, some varieties in each.
1: Okay. So, so the hourglass, I'm just, I'm just trying to, I guess we'll have to get some pictures and post those on the web. Um, so the, this goes into another part of the question and that is, you know, we have the type ones, type twos, type threes, which have the kind of a baboon, Correct. uh, simian type face. And then the one that I find really interesting are the type fours, which are not nothing at all like the type ones or twos or certainly the threes.
2: They're very different. Yes.
1: And they have – we were talking about this just before the show, a a spatulated hand. They have these massively huge hands and massively huge feet. The question I was wondering is if you're in an area and you see some Bigfoot prints, would it be possible to associate, say, that was a type 1 or a type 4, et cetera, that made that print?
2: I I don't know that you'd be able to tell the difference. Maybe size difference. um, You know, until we know more about uh, morphology based on different areas, it's going to be very difficult to tell that.
1: Yes, right. And we don't get a lot of cooperation from the creatures. You know, I can't get four of them, the type fours, twos, threes, ones to sit down all right, kick your feet in the air. Let's have a look at this.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly right.
1: You know, you think about when you used to go to the, the shoe store and, you know, you stand on that device uh, to measure your feet. <laughs> <laughs> They'd have to make a whole new one for these creatures. Yeah, um, all right. So we got a gentleman. Uh, this is from Ray. And Ray's a huge fan of the show. Thank you, Ray. We, we really appreciate that. Uh, He just finished episode 65, and uh, he would love to pick Will's brain for hours. But until that time, uh, he was wondering uh, if you could maybe comment and talk a little bit more about the Puyallup Screamer. And um, he says he's lived in Akron, Ohio, since 77, uh, but he's originally from Puyallup. Oh. And he says he doesn't remember anything about the subject, but he was only six or seven
2: uh, at that time. Well, I mean, I was a teenager when the stuff was going on, so um, it wasn't, at least from my perspective, because, like I say, you know, we didn't watch, I didn't watch a ton of television and stuff back then. I was outside doing things, but um, what information was out there was mostly from. Uh, the Tacoma News Tribune newspaper, and I can remember seeing an article or two about it at the time. So I didn't really know until, you know, Renee DeHinnon and John Green came down there, and, and I met those guys and went to that location. Um, and they, you know, they talked about it, but not, I mean, they were busy with the investigation, so they weren't, you know, I was a 17-year-old kid when I met them, and they weren't there to answer a lot of my questions, but I did get a chance to talk quite a bit to uh, State Patrolman Mark Pittinger who was there and we compared notes about the things we had seen Just a few miles apart. Uh, I live seven miles south of there and um, Apparently there had been uh, A number of sightings in the area lots of vocals um, and, and that was really kind of the gist of it Um it was enough to warrant an investigation to get both green and Hinden down there at the same time. And at that time they really weren't talking very much to each other, but they both were there together and probably the last time they were ever together in the field, doing anything. But, um, like I said, that was kind of the, the main thing. And of course, Pittenger found coyotes torn up and he, he, surmised that they, the vocals they were doing were imitating coyotes to draw them in and, uh, to enable them to kill and eat the things. But, uh, the majority of it was sightings in the area and footprint finds and, uh, and the vocals.
1: And didn't somebody record, or was that the, uh, Sonomish? Somebody recorded something that was oh, yeah. pretty yeah. So one of
2: the incredible. locals, one of the locals there, um, and I can't remember who was off the top of my head, but they had, uh, you know, back in those days we're talking, I think the recording was geez it was around 1973 I could be wrong in that but I think that was about the time frame Uh, I was there in 75 so the recording was made you know a year or two or so before I went there with them Um, so the old old old-fashioned tape recorders where you pushed you know play and record and and you record it and the recording was inside of a house with all the doors and windows closed, and the creature they said was at least a quarter of a mile away, but it sounds like it's right outside the window.
1: Yeah, and that's that's in and of itself pretty dramatic because the volume that made it through <laughs> the distance and through the walls, of the house, and the yeah. window.
2: And it and for an untrained, the untrained ear would say, "Oh, that's a coyote." It was a singular creature making these noises, and um what they did to for comparison because they said well people are going to say this so they did uh made a recording of coyotes that they knew were coyotes and there was there were lots of coyotes in the area um and what they did was interesting they you know technology back then they took a, a, a whole bunch of extension cords and they they ran them out from the house and put the tape recorder out there on a stump with the, the microphone hanging over and let it record <laughs> and John Green gave me a copy years ago of uh, the comparison and he had the pull up screamer and each of the vocals were uh, from start to finish they were very clean you know um, not like the coyotes who were very yippy and barky and whiny sounding Uh, and the other creature or the other vocal was it was sound the sound was similar but it was you could tell it was different If you'd listened to the two back and forth, you could clearly tell there were two different types of vocals going on there.
1: You know, and coyotes, it doesn't take much to get those things, to set them off, to get them going.
2: No, it doesn't.
1: Um, I remember, you know, I I mean, I've heard them, you know, um, umpteen times, but I remember one time camping. And uh, about four in the morning, they're probably a hundred yards or a couple hundred yards from our camp. And they must have caught a rabbit or something, because the, the, the howling or the yipping went to, you could tell they were snarling and
0: <laughs> tearing oh, yeah. into
1: something. Um, but, yeah, it doesn't take much to set those guys off. And, again, the volume, the power behind, when you, you know this, and I know this, that when you hear these things, even if it was a coyote, it, it's like a coyote with a pair of lungs that would, you know, power a, a locomotive. I mean, they're
2: just <laughs> – Right.
1: Right. Yeah. They're very powerful. Um, and the other thing I want to say about that or kind of comment is the way the media treated this topic back then versus how it's treated today. Um, you know, it was taken seriously and I find it interesting the fact that they reported it. Uh, you said what, two, two papers, at least two newspapers, right?
2: Um, I, what I, we used to get the Tacoma News Tribune, that was sort of the major paper, the area, uh, and, and the articles I saw were in that. Uh, I don't recall. I mean, they may have put them in other publications. I just don't know.
1: Right. Okay. Um, But it's just interesting that they would, and I'm not sure that it would happen if it was uh, today.
2: Well, it wouldn't be written about the same way, you know, back in those days. um, It was, it was, it was just put out as straight news. You know, they were just telling you what they were reporting and what happened without any sort of editorial attached to it.
1: Right, which is, unlike today's news, which seems to be uh, print primarily op-ed, um, you know, repackaged as news. Not not always, but in many cases. Um, so was there a difference between the Puyallup Screamer and I think there was another one that was kind of infamous? What Was it the Sonomish?
2: Well, yeah. Um yeah, in, in the Snohomish area, there there were some screams. There was a lady who was recording screams there. And um, personally, that recording always, um, the one I'm thinking of, always sort of got to me because it, it sounded so much like the things I had heard.
1: Okay. Now, was that the, the things that you heard in... Um, uh, Oh, the clark ranch or
2: we did yeah there was okay there was actually a variety of noises you know at the clark ranch but um boy it's and it's hard to go into that because there was so much going on it was so fast and you know we were scared to test the whole night basically but there was a variety of noises some some were the coyote like noises some were more like the peel um this the homie screams
1: you know, there's another one that somebody recorded, and I thought it was really interesting, and that was northeast Oregon. There's a, a reservation, the Umatilla uh, Reservation, and I don't know if you're familiar with that one, but somebody recorded uh, some of the natives there, recorded some sounds. Apparently, it had been going on for some time, Yeah, and it spooked
2: them. Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so and again that would be see that would be northeast oregon so you know that would roughly you know that you go across the the border go across the river and you know you're in eastern washington and i think eastern washington's got quite the uh number of sightings there as well
2: it does quite a lot
1: um and then there's other other sounds you know we hear uh Oh gosh, I've heard them—the uh, scream barks, and you know the the one that I've I think is probably the most common is—and you mentioned this the whistle, the night whistles. Yes. Which the one that I heard, the only one I only heard one, but but it sounded like a person who you know when they put their fingers to their lips and go, but but the power behind it, the the just very sharp, very loud, very powerful uh, Mm -hmm. whistle.
2: I wanted to mention um, if you want to put this on the website, I sent you in one of the articles uh, from let's see, it was dated January 29th, 1975. So, this was just a few months before uh, I went to that very area with uh, Green and DeHinden, where uh, footprints had been found. And in this article they talk about the track was so fresh that water was still running into it when they photographed it.
1: <laughs> That's too fresh.
2: That's too fresh. <laughs>
1: because I would, and you'd probably agree that at that point, this thing not only knows you are there, it might actually be watching you or other members of its entourage, maybe keeping an eye on you.
2: See, and, and the article says it talks about there were two sets of footprints Which is you know and again, it's not wasn't that far from where I lived and had my sighting and close encounter in 1974 Um, You know again just a few months uh, my sighting was probably I'm guessing October because of the, the weather conditions and this was January. So very short time period between my encounter and when these tracks were found and there were two sets of tracks and I encountered two creatures. So there were three in total, but um, it seemed like the two were together often.
1: So this article, um, do we know anything about the person who found the tracks? because I, 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 I'm interested in the fact that somebody... Were they were they actively following this thing, or was it a? Um,
2: These were just said they were raccoon hunters. Two raccoon okay. hunters found a set of huge footprints near here last week, and claimed to have discovered discovered another trail in the same area.
1: The uh, eleven gives, to twelve hundred pound raccoon.
2: And it gives their names and um, talks about what Mark Pittinger had to say about them and see now. And it talks about 112th and Shaw, which is close to where Green and Hinden's camp was, where that I stayed at. And um, I actually interviewed a gentleman who was, uh, I think he was around 10 years old at the time, who him and a couple of his friends had a direct encounter with one of the creatures in that same area, uh, at, at around the same time. It's in my uh, it's in my first book, Notes from the Field. The interview is.
1: Okay, so... um
2: the man's name was Martin Elliott.
1: Okay, and he he was about 10 when he ran into this, when he encountered they were,
2: it? Yeah, him and his friends were playing in the woods there near 112th and Shaw, and uh, broad daylight, and this creature sort of parted, he said he parted the brush with its hands and stared at him, and, you know, they were very close. They were probably within 10 feet of this creature. And they took off running scared, obviously.
1: Right? Wow. And that's pretty common. Um, you do hear uh, reports where people say they've seen it part the branches. Yeah. And then, so it really begs the question if the creature had not parted the branches, you could have been within proximity, very close proximity, and you'd never know it.
2: Yeah, right. They, they had no clue it was there until it made its presence known. And and if the <laughs> other two were in the area, it's unknown. They they pretty much stayed together, but sometimes they'll separate a bit when they're feeding, but uh, we have no idea. They just saw the one. Right. And, and this is also very close to the place where Mark Pittinger, the state trooper, saw the three creatures the first time himself.
1: Yeah, and I wanted to ask you about that. I was wondering if you could maybe just kind of recount his encounter and i'm also very fascinated with his crawling through the woods and finding those uh coyotes
2: well he told me you know right i was introduced to him by renee de and uh which was it was kind of kind of cool actually you know this washington state trooper talking to this 17 year old kid you know kind of on a on a same footing you know he wasn't acting like he was superior or anything mm-hmm. really nice guy Uh, We were just comparing notes about the things we had both seen in the same general time frame, and he was telling me that he was sitting alongside the road. I I think that was on uh, what was then 112. It's I think it's a different name for that road now, but um, and back in those days, early 70s, you know, he was sitting with his his cruiser off the side of the road one evening with, and he had his lights and engine running. there was virtually no traffic in that area back at that time, especially at night. And there was an embankment on either side of the road, a fairly steep one. And he heard a noise, and he was sitting there writing out his paperwork. And uh, he looked up, and he saw these three creatures come down the embankment from his right, walk right in front of his car through the headlights, take two steps across the road, and go up the other embankment. Uh, Needless to say, he was in a bit of uh, shock. (laughs) (laughs) So i i don't remember what he said he did after that um of course he started you know trying to look into what the heck this was um you know so when he and this must have been after he was in touch with john green most likely or, or the locals in the area who were seeing things I, I don't remember how that all unfolded but um he said that one day he had his 30 out six and he was um apparently off duty so he was tracking these things He would found some prints and he was tracking them all three of them, and he came upon some coyote corpses, a number of them, and he said it was obvious right away what had happened. He said these things were mimicking coyotes, and, and they'd heard this often in the area. These screams, and when the coyotes would get too close to where it was, you know, they realized what really was there. Uh, these things would snatch them up by the hindquarters, and they smashed their heads on alder trees. He said ten feet off the ground. And he said they they had torn him apart right there and eat him. And he said it was a pretty gruesome mess, and it scared him so bad, uh, he low crawled on his stomach out of the area with his rifle, hoping they wouldn't detect him. So, and he was a big guy um, and had quite a reputation for being, you know, pretty bold. So, <laughs> you know, to scare somebody like that uh, took a lot. I mean, the, you know, his the impression he got from that sight you know, instilled that much fear in him that he low-crawled out of there.
1: I can imagine. I mean, you know, if you you put yourself in that situation, you're like, my gosh, I could be grabbed by my legs and have my skull smashed against a tree. That's what
2: he was afraid of, yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, Well, and you sent me a picture some time ago that uh, somebody had submitted to you that was a deer hanging in a tree 15 feet up in the air.
2: Yeah, right. Jeremiah sent me that from um, a contact he made in the Adirondacks in upper New York.
1: And so this is a thing that, they, that these creatures do, apparently. Now, that one looked like it was more of a baiting situation.
2: Yeah, and now that tree, it wasn't just a singular event. That same tree had been used on at least one other occasion with exactly the same thing. And another deer that was hanging 11 feet up the tree. okay. Okay. So that that was my guess. It was a baiting site.
1: Well, and you know, we talked to that guy here in Oregon Dalton and he was, I, th- I think he talked about, uh, going down a trail and seeing some fish hanging in a tree.
2: Right. Right.
1: That didn't belong, you know, fish, hanging in a tree, and he said it was in a very heavy, if I recall right, I think he said it was in a heavily canopied area. So, what? Baiting? Baiting for bear, maybe.
2: Yeah, it could very well be, sure. I mean, lots of animals are going to come after the smell of fish.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah, and they're very pungent, and very, especially when they start to rot, they really sure. put out an odor. Um, yeah, he
2: said, he said by the appearance, and he's a pretty good outdoorsman, um, that they were not, it wasn't some accidental situation that they had been placed there
1: yeah and i can only imagine you know you're going to be very quizzical when you see that and you're going to look at it and you're going to be trying to in your mind establish how did how and why what what's the story here how did this happen why did this happen exactly and i would think it'd be just a little bit unnerving as well Uh, very much so (laughs) <laughs> yeah and and then you know I don't remember if that was before or after his encounter with the uh,
2: creature but I don't recall whatever yeah. to ask him
1: yeah but that would that would be very very unnerving um so we yeah it's it's these things do put uh, bait out and you know that really speaks to their intelligence
2: it does yes.
1: Because I'm just trying to think, you know. I don't think bears, I don't think mountain lions. I don't think there's any other creature that uses baiting that I know of, anyway.
2: No, that's uh, I think pretty much. There may be some instances of it, um, but it's that's mostly a a a primate type thing. Yeah. So
1: abstract thinking and exactly and planning ahead.
2: Um, I would say. I would say not just a human attribute, it's it's a hominid attribute.
1: Yes. Yeah, exactly. Because after all, that's what we're... That's what our topic is, is, is hominid. And there's a lot of, I guess, parallels to some extent between us and them, right. you know, as far as the thinking goes. Um, yeah, what I really find interesting is... Their absolute aversion to humans, for the most part, with with those exceptions, you know, like the state trooper, where three of them ran and or walked across his vehicle in the headlights. Well, they knew, of course, they knew.
2: Sure, they knew, and why they did that, we don't know. And right, it, it may not have been just pure accident, or well, we don't care. There may have been something more behind that, because he didn't stick around long after that.
1: <laughs> right, I you know I wish I could have. I'd love to talk to a guy like that who, especially in that time period, because there was no, you know, there really wasn't a whole lot of this um, culture or you know understanding of Bigfoot. It just wasn't out there.
2: And back in that time, he caught a lot of flack over that. He knew what he saw, but he and, and was wanted to investigate it. But he still caught a lot of flack from his uh, peers
1: right well i can imagine sure <laughs> and, and so think about the shock value the shock factor of that and to be just you know like you say completely out of his frame of reference
2: oh totally. and,
1: yeah yeah you're in the wtf mode for, <laughs> <laughs> for on a scale for of for one to 10, you're about
2: a 15
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh man um yeah, so that was, uh, I've always found that to be a, a real interesting encounter. And, you know, coming from a very credible source as well.
2: Very much so, yeah.
1: Um, so, all right. And just, again, getting back to the uh, the creatures, the different morphology, uh, it would be interesting to know that, you know, I asked about the, uh, the type 4s, if, if their feet were... Um, or if any of them could be distinguished one from another you know we just don't know enough about that but um, what do we know about the type threes uh, as far as areas where they're you know generally spotted you know uh, witness encounters that sort of thing
2: well not a whole lot just yet now I'm I'm still waiting to be able to go talk to my source on that information who has the information but Um, they inhabit mainly the Mississippi River drainage system that's sort of their main area of of occupation Um, they they're very similar to the type ones out here like you see in the Patterson film the main distinguishing feature is the simian face you know the uh, more the baboon type protruding face Uh, other than that we don't know a great deal at least not yet
1: yeah, I think we did have one uh, we, one guest we've had on the show that I'm uh, James and Tammy and James. Didn't they see one of those or was it a different one?
2: I, I think that was more the type one because I don't remember them describing the face as being elongated like that. What they saw, they did see two different types, but the other type was the uh, the... I guess they're described as more of the tall, lanky ones. Uh, they saw two of those very ugly. They said in appearance, uh, when they caught wind of the other type present, they made a quick about face and left the area. But now what I was told was that variety is very, very aggressive. They're very nasty creatures, but apparently they didn't want to deal with the other type.
1: Right. And I, one of them, uh, have a dis... Uh, he said it had a disgusted look on its face.
2: That was the first individual, the the Patterson type, the Type One creature. Uh, yeah, he said it got a very had a very disgusted look on its face when the, it either saw you know the other two or, or however it detected them. I think it was they said, he said it was sitting down. I'd have to go back. It was a long time ago and listen to that episode again where they described that. But um, and that was James and Tammy in Alabama, um, where it was sitting in the grass and. And the other two came around into appearance there from some trees or or what have you. And uh, it got a very disgusted look on its face. And then they caught wind of it, and they made a hasty about face and left.
1: Yeah, interesting. So they don't want to have an encounter. They don't want a confrontation. Because, you know, again, it could be, uh, you know, in that world, it could be uh, fatal.
2: Even though they had larger numbers, I think the other two were apparently frightened of the other type
1: oh oh so the Which, patty types were frightened of the type four
2: no no reverse
1: oh, okay, the, other two oh, were frightened okay.
2: Of the first individual and of course you know being much bigger and stronger i'm sure uh for good reason they they made a hasty retreat
1: so there is some overlap with the different types
2: oh yeah yeah
1: well, that brings up another question, and that is uh, you've mentioned that, uh, generally speaking, the creatures will spend um, what 7 to 14 days in an area. And then this is now that we're talking about the Northwest, maybe even just Washington, but they'll spend that time period in an area and then they'll move on to another area and on to another one.
2: Yeah, they, they but, rotate their feeding areas throughout the ranges throughout the year
1: yeah which makes sense you don't deplete your resources in that area
2: and that's and that's the western part of the country now as far as the other parts of the country we don't really know the patterns yet but right they don't but they don't occupy a range like they do out here they're they're more on the move rather than you know sticking to a range area Hmm. well and, you know and you know this i mean
1: washington and oregon and washington especially i mean washington's like uh, even though it has a greater population, it's kind of like Oregon on steroids as far as the wilderness goes. There are just some exceptionally remote areas, vast, vast stretches of inaccessible wilderness. Yeah, you know, in, in both states.
2: When you get away, yeah, both states. Both states are very similar. You get away from populated areas, and it can be very remote.
1: So the question I have is, maybe there's not an answer for it, but if. If, for example, a group moves out of one of their feeding areas within that, you know, seven to 14 day time frame, um, is it possible that another group might move in? Because I understand that it can be years before that first group will return back, could be two, three, four years maybe before they come back.
2: Well, what they, what I found, you know, from my work in the field tracking one particular group in, in especially… Um, they would move throughout their range and it was a little over 3000 square mile range. Actually it's bigger, you know, with recent information I've gotten, but at that time I was looking at 3000 square miles. Um, and about every month, which was about that 14 day time period, they would move. Um, and what they would do, let's say, let's say in March, they would be in one place the following March, they would come back to the same general area region. But they might be a few miles away. And in the next year, they'd come back the same time period, same month, but they'd be in yet a different area. So the the place they were in, let's say, the first time I found tracks and, and things in that area, they might not come back to that very same area for a number of years. But they would come to the same general area every year.
1: Oh, okay. All right. So...
2: They would alternate pl- the specific locations they
1: were at. Okay. So if you, for example, if somebody had an encounter at a certain time and place, they could maybe go back to that general area a year later. And I'm just wondering if that holds true for the Pacific Northwest or just that one group, or do you have any thoughts on that?
2: Well, I think it. I think it holds for the type ones in the western part of the country. Now, again, it depends on how you know what people are doing in those areas. If they're disturbed, their patterns can be easily disturbed. So um, if there's enough disturbance, you know, then it's going to throw the whole uh, behavior off from what they're doing. So, and it could take years to figure out what the new pattern is. You know they're very very um, aware of their surroundings and and what people are doing. so, you know, they're not stupid. They're going to alternate their behaviors accordingly.
1: You know, and again, I, I just want to go back and emphasize that kid that saw one 10 feet away were just part of the branches. And again, had it not done that, he wouldn't have noticed it. So there's there is a real possibility. It's more than a possibility. It's almost a certainty that so many people have been in the woods hiking or camping or whatnot in areas that are, you know, I would consider dispersed camping, you know, a little more remote.
2: Um,
1: mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> and these things have been nearby and you didn't have a clue.
2: Exactly. Yeah. I, I think it happens often.
1: Yeah. And you, you, know, you can be under observation and and they're watching us, you know, just maybe they're curious. I don't know. Um, uh, I guess we're in their backyard So, you know, maybe they want to monitor uh, and see what we're up to. Um,
2: Yeah, I think they definitely keep an eye on us.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, this is, um, you know, we've probably all seen that meme where, you know, Bigfoot believes in us, whether we believe in him or not. And you think about it, that makes sense because they're going to see the airplanes, they're going to hear the trains. Trains, you're going to hear those for miles. They're going to hear the cars. They're going to see the cars. And there's places where they're going to be on, they could be in a remote area, but way off on the horizon, they're going to see uh, civilization because let's face it, civilization's everywhere.
2: Well, and we don't hide what we're doing. We're just out there oblivious. And you have to remember, we're a threat to them. So they're going to, you know, for it's necessary for their own survival to keep an eye on what's a threat to them just like we do
1: yeah exactly that makes a lot of sense um it was suggested that when the creatures move out of an area that they may leave a century behind in much in the same fashion that we when we go on vacation we have somebody house sitting uh any thoughts on that
2: Well, it's possible for a short time to be sure they're not, say, being followed. Uh, Especially if there's a lot of human activity in the area. But if you're you're talking about a group that's four to six individuals, typically in size, you're not going to leave your members strung out all over a 3,000 square mile area. You know what I mean? You're going to keep your members relatively close. But you might have a sentry behind you or out to the sides, you know, kind of watching... Um, that would alert the main group if there was a danger coming near, but you wouldn't just leave them there long term.
1: And definitely right. Right. And I wonder if that might not be not exclusive, not, not the sole time they would do this, but, um, the one that is left behind, uh, it could be a circumstance where the, we, you know, we talk about the tree breaks,
2: mm-hmm.
1: it would know, okay, you're going to find the rest of the family or the group or whatever you follow those tree breaks and, and that's where we're at. That's the direction we've gone.
2: Well, you know, the, um, the line, the first time I found a really dramatic tree break and then found a series of them back in 1991. Um, and Lisa that we had on, she found the very same thing where she's at, um, and documented it much the same way I did. And I was told by my, one of my uh, native buddies that he kind of chuckled and he says, oh, you found this finally. <laughs> and and he says, yeah, that was them. He says, what they did here, that was uh, the alpha going off to a new feeding area. And that was to let the other ones know which way to go. Oh, really? Yeah, that's what he told me.
1: And you're you're like, so you just now told me this? I had to find it out for myself?
2: Oh, yeah, that was it. You know, <laughs> Rene DeHinde was the same way. He wouldn't tell me things very often, very seldom. He'd want me to go out and kind of figure things out for myself. Then he would come back, you know, and compare notes.
1: Because it'd be nice to know, what else do you know that you haven't mentioned? Yep, right? <laughs> I'd like to know. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, very interesting. So. Okay, so when they leave an area, they're you know it's it's a possibility that for temporarily they're they're leaving a sentry uh, behind sentry behind, and a, a good reason for that could be to make sure they're not
2: followed. yeah, I, and I would think it'd be a relatively short time period.
1: you know, when you think about it, um, of all the other amongst all the other reasons that these creatures, for the most part, tend to avoid humans, I can't help but wondering if they don't know. They're smart enough. They would realize this. When I'm seen, when any of us are spotted, it brings out humans like sticking a stick in a beehive. Yeah, they and they that. yes, and we're not there for a day or two. Sometimes those humans will be there for months or years like bloodhounds sniffing around the Right area. Here's
2: here's the thought I had too about one more thing. But back up a little bit about the sentry. If you were to leave a sentry behind for a short time period, it could explain some of the vocals that go on. You know, by the alpha saying, "Hey, psst, time to time to come up with the rest of the group."
1: Oh, sure, absolutely.
2: Or it could mean could mean a lot of things. Might say, "Hey, you know, we got a couple of couple of the sub males or, or acting as sentries. You know, to, hey, it's time to need you to get out." We just don't know. There could be a lot of uses for those things. Mm-hmm. But that's a thought, you know, as you're moving through an area, you hear a vocal, and sometimes you just hear just one vocal. I, I've heard that before. Uh, it might be the signal to say, hey, time to catch up with the rest of the group.
1: You know, when you do hear those vocals, you wonder, what does that? There's. I think there was only one time, and that was the whistle, where it kind of made sense because mm-hmm. I'd made a noise, and it was about two or three minutes later and this thing responded one whistle, that was it uh, my buddy that I was with who, you know, school teacher and, and he had worked the uh, forest service cruise in the summertime in that area <laughs> his response was, what was that right. and I believe it may have been phrased a bit differently
2: uh, <laughs> I, you know, I think a lot of people hear things and, you know, it, it kind of raises the question momentarily but then you think you know if a person's out hiking or whatever and it's like eh, there's some animal I don't know what it is and then off you go you don't put another thought to it
1: right and that's exactly what this guy did uh, eventually not right, not right away but it, it shocked him at first and you know and I think I was the one that sort of dwelled and pondered this for quite a while but looks... once you know what to listen for
2: right once you know same thing with visual signs. Once you know what to look for, they just kind of stick out like a sore thumb. But if you don't know, they blend into the background.
1: They blend in. You'll pass by them. You won't give it a second thought. You won't even give it a first thought. Absolutely. And it's uh, like like that friend of mine who said they're hiding in plain sight. Right. Uh, we found some footprints. And when we left the area and got back to the truck, he said, I hate to be hard, but don't ask. I'm never coming back to this <laughs> place. And I've tried. I have tried time and again to get them to go back there. I said, all right, all right. We're not going to go down to work football. We'll just sit up at the top of the trail in the truck and have a hamburger. And Nope. And so month and a half after that little incident, I said, all right, tell you what. We'll go to this other area 30, 40 miles away where they're not. <laughs> and That's I told nice. you about that. And they were there in droves. <laughs> Uh, so he came to the conclusion that uh, they're, they've been hiding in plain sight all along, and they're far more prevalent than we ever imagined.
2: Absolutely. Well, listen, we're out of time for this segment, folks. Stay tuned for the third segment. We're still using some of the recaps of Jim's reading, uh, but they're always interesting, and, and we're still working on getting readers. So, folks, stay tuned for that.
0: Welcome. These eight stories are a collection being brought to you by William Jevning, and are being narrated by me, Jim Sower. Story 1. Sasquatch Story. Sonoma County, California. Sonoma County, California. Just a story. Terrifying screams heard. No sighting. July 1980. Well, I have collected enough information from various Bigfoot sites about screams to conclude that I heard a Sasquatch on a bicycle touring trip from Portland, Oregon to Santa Barbara, California in the summer of 1980. My girlfriend and I arrived at Fort Ross Historical Park north of Jenner, California in Sonoma County on an evening in mid-July. We decided to camp there at Fort Ross as it was marked as a campsite on our map but it had no campsites. There was no one at the main house, nor around the fort, old Russian fur trading fort, or on any part of the grounds. We rode to a campground further south, but it was too expensive. We decided to ride back to Fort Ross. We camped to the left of the upper parking lot under some Monterey Pines next to a picnic bench. We ate dinner and went to bed at around 9 p.m., At approximately 1 a.m., a scream twenty feet to the left of the tent—our heads were facing the ocean—a blood-curdling scream of various sounds in succession that lasted at least nine seconds. It frightened me to my bone marrow. I froze in fear, knowing that whatever made the sound was huge. It was so close I could hear the tremor in its throat. Since I'm a musician, I realize how much force it takes to make a sound that loud— I've also been camping all my life, and have heard various animals, but this was different. I have been told it was a bear or a mountain lion, but I don't think so. Anyway, my girlfriend said in a whisper, What the frick was that? I started to reach for a flashlight, and her hand grabbed my wrist with a vice-like pressure so I didn't move. We remained frozen, listening to every little noise for an hour. Incidentally, there were sheep running free everywhere, going ba ba, and they didn't stop making noise when the scream occurred. Finally, my girlfriend fell asleep, and I remained on guard with my hands hovering around the tent pole to use as a weapon, thinking that at any moment it would stick its fanged head into our tent. At around 2.30 a.m., I guess, I heard another scream down by the fort in the lower parking area. I figured it wasn't coming back, so I fell asleep. It didn't occur to me the next morning that it was a Sasquatch, so I didn't look for footprints, nor did I hear it walking the night before. This is the end of story one. Story number two. A story from Tehama County, California. Summer, 1977, o'clock a.m. No sighting, just an odd occurrence. Nearest town, Chester, Highway 36 at Lost Creek Road. Willow Springs Campground in the Mount Lassen National Forest. Directions, take Highway 36 out of Red Bluff, then Wilson Lake Road to First Right. The road number is 29 North 18. It leads right into Willow Springs Campground, Lassen National Forest at 530-595-4444. My grandpa, my uncle, and I had been working in the area picking up sugar pine and digger pine cones for about three days or so and had planned on being there for around a week. We were camped in a lower campsite in this campground just off the main cinder road coming by the camping area. I remember the camp was right next to a creek and each night we would hear the deer coming down to the creek to water and would occasionally shine our flashlights and see them drinking. One particular night We were sitting around relaxing, and I commented that it was strange that we didn't hear any deer in the creek. In fact, I don't recall even hearing any crickets or any of the usual nighttime noises. There was a group of people camped above us about 100 yards or so up the hill, and they hadn't been there camping as long as we had. The three of us could hear the people in the camp talking and such. Then it was quiet. "'Suddenly someone in the upper camp shouted, "'Hey!' "'Then some loud talking, "'and then this growl, scream noise. "'It was very loud and sounded "'as if it came from a fairly large animal. "'My uncle and I looked at each other, "'asking each other what the heck that noise was. "'We looked at my grandpa, "'who was smiling and chuckling, "'which I found to be very odd "'unless it was to cover up being frightened himself.' My grandpa was a retired logger from Oregon. My uncle had also spent considerable time in the woods, working as well as hunting most of his life. I had spent a lot of time in the woods, also hunting and working for my uncle, but had never heard a sound like that, nor had the rest of us. My grandpa said he thought it was probably a bobcat or cougar, but my uncle and I had never heard any animal make that kind of sound not to mention the fact that those animals will most likely stay away from a loud camp and may venture closer when it is dark and quiet. Anyway, while we were wondering what the first noise was, there began a lot of hollering and another loud growl, scream from the upper camp, vehicle doors slamming, and then the vehicle took off down the road, tires throwing cinders. They were out of there but fast. We, my uncle and I, were shaken up. "'but too proud to admit it to my grandpa. "'We didn't hear anything else from the upper camp. "'Nothing. "'I don't know if they left anything up there, but "'or how they were camped, or anything. "'I do know that they didn't come back. "'We went to bed as it was getting late, "'and I was so afraid to make any sound, "'fearful that it would hear me breathing "'and come into camp to investigate. "'We left a couple of days later.' but I don't recall hearing a deer in the creek in the evenings after that night. All of the information given here is to the best of my recollection. As for the terrain, it was heavily wooded pine forest, quite a bit of brush around the creek area. That's the end of story number two. Story number three. Weaverville, Trinity County, California. A young grocery clerk in Weaverville, Trinity County, "'took me to a point at which he came upon a light-colored Sasquatch "'during the winter of 1994. "'It was not far from Big Bar Ranger Station, "'where he and his girlfriend used to park and neck after work. "'Engaged in some heavy petting, "'they were interrupted by the rocking motion of his Chevy Camaro. "'They looked around, thinking it was one of their friends "'or other kids screwing around with them, "'but the windows were pretty fogged up. "'There was little visibility.' Determined to confront the intruder, the young fellow bounced out of the Camaro, screaming, Knock it off! in a most assertive tone, only to find himself face to face in the pitch dark with a hulking figure he described as a bit taller than he was. Stunned, the kid backed up into the open car door, unable to move. He said the Bigfoot, with his left fist, wailed on the roof of his Camaro, beating it at least three times, but barely denting it. "'I heard it breathing. "'Man, I'm telling you, it was alive. "'Scary blankety-blank. "'I heard it breathe.' "'The informant called to his girlfriend inside the car, "'in what she later described as three octaves higher than his usual voice, "'telling her to lay on the horn. "'Upon hearing the sound of the horn, "'the Sasquatch sidestepped, backing away from the car, "'and stared at the kid. "'I couldn't see his eyes or facial features.' but it was clear he was facing me and looking at me. Even as dark as it was, he was only lit up by the car door light. The terrified kid said he got in the car, locked the doors, started the engine, and did a quick U-turn on Big Bar Dump Road. Amazingly, he said the Sasquatch followed them up the road where it turns onto Corral Bottom Road, keeping pace with the car for several hundred feet before trailing off where they could no longer see it. I spoke with the two informants at J.C. Cafe in Junction City for more than two hours. Their account never wavered, and they still showed great fear in recalling the event. The female witness never actually saw the creature, but said she heard its raspy breathing. It was evidently too dark to get much of a description other than what he could see of the creature. Illuminated by the Camaro door's light. He knew right away what he was looking at, but in the shock of the moment he was able to distinguish little. Responding to my question, did you see a reflection from its eyes in the car light? He replied there was no color or light emitted from its eyes. There was no smell from the creature, and he could not tell if it was male or female, only that it was this humongous dark towering image that he could hear breathing quite heavily and with angry intensity. He said it kept pace with his Camaro to about 20 miles an hour. Then it trailed off, but he wasn't sure of his speed. His girlfriend, amazed by it all, only saw a blurred image through the foggy windows. A happy ending to this story, though. The Amherst couple are now married and expecting twins. This is the ending of story number three. Story number four, late at night, Canada. In June 1996, chief editor of Animal Watch, Alex Michael, wrote of her encounter with Sasquatch in volume number one, issue number ten. I thought to copy the article here as I found it one of the more chilling accounts I have read and educational as well. Late at night by alex michael a true story my family has always been notorious for doing things at odd hours and as you may well know the strangest things always happen late at night it was an unusually warm autumn some years ago and at 16 years of age i had just finished a summer job as an arts and crafts camp counselor the only thing left to do was pick up a rather large trunk filled with my belongings unable to fit such a large trunk inside the V.W. Beetle I had purchased just a few weeks before, my mother was volunteered to transport it from the mountains back to the city in the larger of the family cars. Summer camp was a very wild place for me, with staff partying every night until the wee hours of the morning. My room was near the entrance of the staff residence where all these parties took place. By late July, Sleep-deprived party wimps like myself were weeded out, so I built a single mattress-sized platform in the woods and then covered it with polyplastic. Volley Provincial Park, an undisturbed protected forest was only a stone's throw away. It is there that my mother, a small dog named Willow, and myself were going to retrieve my trunk at three o'clock on a Monday morning. Why three in the morning? Well, I could say it was the heat, but it was mostly because my father had not yet been told that the car would be leaving town. There was also my adolescent fear that knowledge of the platform construction would somehow reflect itself in a summer paycheck I had not yet received. My mother had to be at work by 6.30, so we had less than an hour to complete this covert action as we approached the highway turnoff, a sliver of the moon cast a glowing border around southwestern Alberta's Mount Yamnuska. Driving several miles along the gravel road, the camp looked deserted. Summer staff had cleared out several weeks before, and a handful of permanent staff were either taking days off in the city or asleep in cabins several miles from the summer campsite. Angling off on the side of the road, my mother left the headlights on, pointing into the trees. There was some discussion about taking the twenty-pound dog named Willow for protection. However, Willow's track record for wandering off severely threatened a successful completion of the mission. Plus, very uncharacteristically, the dog named Willow now refused to get out of the car and was partially hidden under the driver's seat. Car headlights were of no value after the first few seconds of meandering through the forest. We had a flashlight, but I was having difficulty remembering the exact location. The 15-minute walk turned into a 30-minute skin-scraping bushwhack, but finally we arrived at the isolated platform, even though the flashlight batteries were now dead. I assured my mother all that needed to be done was to take down the polyplastic rain cover and carry back a mattress and the trunk. It should only take two trips. She was noticeably silent, "'as we began working in the darkness. "'My mother began untying strings, securing the poly to the ground, "'and I was kneeling on top of the four-foot-high platform, "'stretching up to reach some tangled binder-twine knots tied to a tree. "'A pungent smell suddenly flooded the air. "'My eyes moved from the knots to the tall length of plastic.' There, distorted through the semi-transparent poly, was a huge shadow only about seven feet away. With the four-foot platform and me kneeling on top, the creature was easily at eye level. A split second later, there was an incredibly loud screaming roar. Although I know of nothing to describe it, the sound was like a peacock's scream, a bear growl and a lion's roar all somehow combined. "'I can't tell you if I screamed. "'I can't tell you much of anything, "'other than my eyes continued to peer through the plastic "'at this massive shadow. "'My five-foot-three-inch-tall mother "'had somehow leaped into the air "'and was now up on the platform beside me. "'Whatever it was, "'finally turned and walked slowly away "'on its long behind-feet. "'We continued watching "'as each heavy step could be heard "'contacting the ground.' There were no visible ears, just a sparse mohawk-like fringe sprouting up from the tapering top of the creature's head. From behind, the upper body appeared massive. It continued to walk upright until disappearing into the trees. We stayed on top of the platform, motionless, for some time after. Then, finally, I started ripping down the plastic. I have no idea what my mother did during the next forty or fifty seconds, but my next memory was power-walking through the forest, balancing a single mattress on top of my head with one hand and carrying the handle of the trunk in the other. I assumed my mother was holding up the other end of the trunk. With Willow still hidden under the driver's seat, it was a very quiet drive home. Late at night, they say that your mind can play tricks on you, but I am so certain Brown Bears had been in the area that summer but I have never seen a bear walk upright that smoothly for that long a time. Or could it have been a very large, long-furred man standing over seven feet in height? I say man because intuition tells me that the creature was a male. Could it have been a Sasquatch that night? I will never really know for sure, but you can bet that I will keep telling the story, as if it were. This is the end of story number four. Story number five. Logan Lake, British Columbia, Canada. Nearest big city, Kamloop. The informants, a man and his wife, were not too far from me camping in the summer of 2000, and during their stay they were experiencing some rather frightful events. The reason they contacted me was because they had come across my sighting and because theirs happened so close, they wanted to talk to me. They were camping for two weeks, and during this time, their food was being taken, and even some clothes were missing. They thought maybe coyotes, or even bears, but one morning, after hearing something in the campsite during the night, they woke up to find everything tossed around the campsite. Even the guy's boat on a trailer was moved a few feet. One night in particular, Something hit the side window and broke it, and in the morning they found a large rock sitting there in the dirt. On another night, they said it sounded like a few people were outside their camper mumbling. Jill said it was like someone had their mouth full of food. I pictured the Sasquatches eating all their food and trying to talk to each other. After that morning incident, they cleaned up and had breakfast, when Jill had noticed bare footprints just off to the side of their camper, and they said it was obvious to them by the size of the prints that the visitor during the night had to be a Sasquatch, nothing else. They said the prints were around 18 inches long. The man put his size 12 foot inside the print, and there were still five or so inches more in length. They told me that a couple days later they were out in the boat fishing and actually saw this thing in their campsite while they were out in the boat. Apparently it was throwing their stuff around and making a mess of things. The couple described the Sasquatch as a reddish-brown with long arms and a funny-shaped head. They believed it to be a male because of its bulk, size, and height, which they say was about seven to eight feet tall. I asked if it could have been a bear, and they both replied, As God is our witness, what we saw was a Sasquatch. After describing the arms, legs, head, and all, there was nothing else it could have been. Personally, judging by their body language, and the way they were trembling while talking to me, I believed them one hundred percent, no doubt whatsoever. The older couple said they waited in the boat for a while, until they were certain it was gone and as fast as they could they chucked everything in the camper and left the area, only packing up properly when they got to the town where they ended up staying that night. The couple were in their sixties, very clean and neat and polite. I can't see these two spinning a tail because it's been almost six years since that time, and they preferred not to be bothered by it. The sighting area is no more than a 40-minute car ride from me and it's exciting because I've actually heard of another sighting in that area but I didn't pay much attention to the person at the time but now I'm going to try and track him down to hear what he has to say. I'm wondering if maybe there is a Sasquatch and it could still be in that area. Tim Martindale, Merritt, British Columbia This is the end of story number five. Story number six Teapot Hill Hiking Trail in Cultus Lake Provincial Park My name is Sanel Hodzik, and today december twelfth, twenty twelve 2012, at approximately three PM, I was hiking with my dog up Teapot Hill Hiking Trail near Cultus Lake Provincial Park in the Fraser River Valley. The nearest town would be toward Chilliwack, British Columbia, Canada. On my way down the trail, I was changing my music on my iPhone, not really paying attention to my surroundings, when I noticed that my dog, Lila, was barking like crazy. She was about five feet ahead of me and staring off into the distance, so I stopped and looked ahead when I noticed something in the bushes about 50 feet ahead of me. I was so scared that I froze and just kept staring at it. After about a ten-second stare-down, I switched my camera on and quickly took a picture. Meanwhile, my dog is still barking like crazy. I then picked up a rock and threw it in the direction of the thing, and then I quickly turned around and ran back up the hill. I waited about until I saw someone else coming down the hill, and I followed him closely behind all the way down. So uh, I do believe I saw the Sasquatch or Bigfoot that day. If I could describe it, I would say he was about eight to nine feet tall, very hairy and big. His skin color was brownish. His face was something like a monkey or ape. I took it with a full zoom on my iPhone 4. He was about fifty yards away from me. He's in the middle, rightish of the picture. Only thing I noticed really was how he was standing, looking at me. It had a long face with bigger forehead with long hair starting from about the top of its head. Sunel Hodzik, Chilliwack, British Columbia. That is the end of story number six. Story number seven. Letter from El Paso County, Colorado Springs, Colorado. Summer, 1991. To whom it may concern. After reading some of your stories regarding Bigfoot, I thought I would add something I have kept rather a secret for quite some years. I was a cadet at the U.S. Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, Colorado, back in the summer of 1991. I had been at the Academy for only a few weeks and was finishing up basic training when it happened. Now, the Academy itself sits on the foothills of the Colorado Rocky Mountains. Basically, I could step out of the cadet area and I would be standing in the mountains. There's plenty of brush, trees, and so on to conceal just about anyone of anything you want back there. Anyhow, one night, about 9 p.m., my roommate and I were laying in bed chatting about our upcoming camp out in Jack's Valley, an area just beside the academy where we did a lot of field training, when we heard what sounded like a woman screaming her head off. "'It was absolutely horrific to hear. "'What was most interesting was that prior to the blood-curdling noise "'we could hear the other cadets in their rooms talking and joking. "'The campus was basically shut down for the night "'and everyone was getting ready for the next day. "'I remember the ambient noise being rather loud. "'Then this scream came. "'All of a sudden you could have heard a pin drop it was so quiet.' I turned and asked my roommate if he heard what I and everyone else had just heard. I know, what a dumb question. He looks at me and says, Oh, yeah, that's the local Bigfoot. I couldn't believe it, but of course I heard it. He then proceeds to tell me about a buddy of his who saw a big hairy human drinking at a local lake. When it saw his friend watching it, it stood up, turned away, and walked into the forest. Of course, the next week in Jack's Valley, for me, was a very nervous affair. I was more worried about getting up at night and walking to the latrine by myself than I was running the assault course. Well, I just thought I'd add my two cents worth. Please withhold printing my name from this email if you decide to post it. Thank you. That's the end of story number seven. STORY NUMBER 8 Lake Christie, Ottawa, Ontario, Canada My story. I don't even know where to begin. To this day, even the thought of what I am about to tell you makes every hair on my body stand up and brings tears to my eyes. Why the tears? I don't know. But they are genuine. I have never discussed this with anyone, and hadn't planned to, but... After stumbling across your sight, I think I've had a change of heart. I live in Ontario, Canada. It is probably for this reason that I have never said anything until now. To my knowledge, almost all Sasquatch sightings are along the west coast on the continent and along the Rocky Mountains. I don't know how many sightings have been recorded this far east, but I know what I saw and heard on a few separate occasions." I used to work at a scout camp in northeastern Ontario. It is in a very remote location, nearly an hour's drive from any civilization, and one of the only true scout camps in all of Canada. It is surrounded by lakes and large hills of dense forests on all sides, and there are a few cottages scattered here and there around the main lake and camp that it's stationed on. Lake Christie, if I remember correctly. Although I live far away from this place, I worked there every summer from 1996 to 1999. My first experience happened in 1996. I was 16 years old. As a counselor, every two weeks we were moved around and put in charge of different scout and cub scout groups. I guess so everyone gets a chance to work with groups of all ages. On this particular rotation, I was working with one of the senior scout groups at the camp. As part of their last week there, they had to partake in what was called a solo night. This is where each camper is driven by one of the assistant camp directors to a remote location and left for the night with the bare necessities to survive, a sleeping bag, rations for one day, and two strike-anywhere matches. It was on this particular night that I will never forget the sounds that I heard. It was late at night in August, I am not exactly certain of the time, and I was sleeping in my tent in the upper field, which is not exactly on the upper campgrounds, but up the dirt road quite a ways, and into the bush another five minutes' walk. Altogether, probably a twenty-minute walk from the main campground. In the middle of my slumber, I was suddenly awakened by a loud "'deep shrieking, squealing sound "'that I had never heard before. "'I sat up in my tent, "'alarmed and uncertain of what I had heard. "'I thought maybe it was one of my colleagues "'playing a trick on me, "'and the other two counsellors "'who were camped up there alone for the night, "'or one of the other two, for that matter. "'This being a camp full of staff "'who are well known for their pranks, "'I wouldn't have put it past them. "'Then I heard the noise again, It was even louder. At first I thought it was a skunk being attacked by coyotes or something. I have heard that sound before and witnessed it. For those who don't know, skunks actually make a sort of shrieking, squealing sound when being mauled to death. I saw it firsthand, but that is another story altogether. Editor's note. All mustilidae, such as wolverines, weasels, badgers, civet cats, skunks, and otters, etc., "'Emit a loud to groaning squeal "'or high-rolling shriek "'often sounding like a woman "'in hopeless distress "'when caught by predators "'or in iron-set traps. "'The sound can be very loud "'and unnerving, "'even from a wounded rabbit. "'However, the sound "'was much deeper. "'Then, just as it had come, "'the sound stopped. "'I lay awake for the rest "'of the night, barely moving a muscle.' When morning came, and the sun was bright enough, I slowly came out of my tent and walked to the main campground for breakfast. A few minutes later, the other two counselors came down to the main camp and gave me a mysterious glance. Then one of them approached and asked me, Was that you making all that racket last night? You scared poor Dave half to death. I just looked at him and said, What racket? With a stone-cold look. He gave me a knowing look and walked away. We never discussed it after that, and no one mentioned pulling a prank on me or the other two that night. Sooner or later, everyone owned up to their pranks, but no one even mentioned this one at all. It was not until months later that I realized what I may have heard. I was watching a documentary on TV about Bigfoot, and a crew hunting the evasive being had recorded what they thought were mating calls of the mysterious creature. When I heard the sounds of the recording come from the TV, the memories of that night came back to me. I quickly sat up, eyes glued to the screen, and the hairs on my neck stood up again. It sounded almost identical. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Again. My next encounter was two years later, 1998, in August, again, It was late August, and there were no more cubs for the remainder of the summer, so the designated cub field and its cabins were vacant. So, not having much to do and no kids to watch, I decided to sleep in the cub field with the rest of the staff who had no children to take care of. The cub field is exactly that. It is a large clearing in the middle of dense forest up yet another hill. It is probably 150 yards wide and probably 200 to 250 yards long, with a row of small cabins on either side. While I laid in bed in one of the cabins, I woke a little after 12 o'clock a.m. I don't know why, but I was just suddenly awake. In the distance, I heard what I thought was howling, but I wasn't exactly sure. It sounded kind of muffled, but I was used to that sort of thing. I looked over at one of the other counselors staying in my cabin that night, and he was fast asleep. Then, out of nowhere, I heard what I thought was someone running right by my cabin. The steps were heavy and quick. I shot out of bed, grabbing my flashlight, wondering who was running around at this hour, since everyone was supposed to be in bed hours ago. I swung the door of the cabin open and shone my flashlight in the field. I couldn't believe what I saw next. About forty feet away, diagonally from me, I saw a large, hairy creature walking across the field, very swiftly. I stood there in shock, wondering what my eyes were seeing. This thing was absolutely enormous. At first I thought it might be a bear, but then realized something. It was walking upright, on two legs. It was very tall, bulky, and had dark brown hair covering its entire body. Then, as if noticing my flashlight, it stopped, turned, and looked at me. I could see the yellow reflection of its eyes and its face. The face seemed to be almost half human, half ape-like, having little hair on its face, but the skin was almost the same color as its hair, a sort of light brownish color, it stood there, looking at me, and I at it, for what seemed like an eternity, but was probably more like a few seconds. I wanted to scream. I wanted to wake up the others, but I was frozen. I was caught up in the phenomenon that I was seeing, and couldn't move. That's when I noticed the smell. It was such a rancid odor, I had to plug my nose to save from puking, then The creature turned and began to continue its swift movement across the field, and in a matter of seconds it was across the field, walked between two cabins, and into the dense forest. It was when it walked between the two cabins that I realized how tall this being was. I am six foot tall, without standing on my tiptoes. I can reach approximately to the seven foot four inch mark. This thing, as it walked between the two cabins, was taller than where the top one of the doors is. The cabins are elevated off the ground. From standing on the ground, I cannot touch the top of one of the doors. I am a couple of inches shy of it. I checked the next day. I would estimate that this thing was probably around eight feet tall, or close to it. Again, I lay awake for the remainder of the night, my hatchet by my side. This was the scenario for many of the remaining nights of that summer before I went home. There were even sleepless nights afterwards while at home. I didn't think I was afraid of anything, until that night. I tried searching for tracks the next day, but to no avail. I couldn't find anything. The next day I asked one of the head counselors if there were any large animals in the general area, such as bears, and he said... "'No. Apparently there were no bears for miles and miles. "'I never mentioned anything about what I saw that night. "'I didn't want anyone to think that I was crazy. "'I thought I would just wait and see "'if anyone else mentioned something before I said anything. "'No one did. "'My last encounter was the following and my final year, "'yet again in August.' I don't know why I went back after all of the nightmares and sleepless nights from the previous summer. I guess I thought it was a -a once-in-a-lifetime thing. This time, I had taken a rowboat out onto the lake with a lady friend whom I had met that summer. Yes, there are female staff at scout camps. The main beach for the camp is in a small inlet of the lake, almost like a sort of small bay, before it opens up. As I was taking her on our romantic moonlight row as I was taking her out on our romantic moonlight row I heard what I thought was somebody whistling at me I stopped rowing she didn't hear it but I know I did I looked around at the surrounding shoreline and didn't see anything next I heard a splash "'a little one, as if someone had thrown a rock into the water. "'I thought maybe another couple was somewhere along that shore. "'I grabbed my flashlight. "'She grabbed hers. "'We scanned the shore from the safety of our boat "'to see if we could spot them. "'We were scanning in different sections. "'Then I saw them, those eyes, the yellow reflection.' "'I focused in on them, and they had an eerie resemblance "'to the ones I had seen the year before. "'Do you see them?' I heard her ask. "'Without looking away, I said, "'No, you?' "'No,' she replied. "'What is that?' referring to the eyes caught in my light. "'A deer?' she asked. "'Yeah, probably,' I said. "'But I knew better. "'Then the eyes were gone.' We then agreed that there was probably another couple out there and we didn't want to get busy in front of other people, so I turned the boat around and we went back to the camp. I have kept these secrets with me for five plus years now. This is one thing I can honestly say I haven't told a single soul until now. I will never forget what I've seen and heard, although there was no physical contact I have been extremely traumatized from what I've experienced. All this has been put in the back of my mind until now, probably because there was a show on this Discovery Channel about Sasquatch today. Like I said before, it still makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. This is the end of the eight stories. Thank you for listening. Welcome. This story is being brought to you by William Jevning. And is being narrated by me, Jim Sower. The name of this story Two Tales of the Yeho. Curious legend of the Kentucky Mountains, four or five versions of this curious and strange legend, come into my collection over a period of about six years, nineteen forty eight to nineteen fifty four, from an isolated region of the Kentucky Mountains. At first I did not know what to make of it, but having also collected a few versions of The Bear's Son, story minus the half-bear, half-man introduction, I guessed that this was the introduction now broken away and told separately. It now appears to be a distinct legend, since Dr. Archer Taylor refers me to The Long Search for American Versions by Mr. Rudolph Atrachi. And now that I reflect on this item I realize that and now that I reflect on this item I realize that it is not unique to Kentucky mountain folklore. During my youth in these mountains it was not unusual to hear a rumor of some half-wild man naked and hairy being found in the woods living close to animal state. This kind of Romulus Remus legend seems to stick in the minds of the folk but how this particular legend made its way into eastern Kentucky is a mystery to me. The following version was taken down in pencil in 1950 from the lips of Lee Maggard, who lived in a small cabin on the south slope of the Pine Mountain Range near the small lumber town of Putney, Harlan County, Kentucky. He had heard it on Maggard's branch, Leslie County, Kentucky. The Yeho. Once there was man out hunting. He got lost, and after a while, he began to get hungry. He came to a big hole in the ground, and he thought he would venture down into it. He went down in there, and he found that the old Yeho lived in there. There was deer meat hanging up and other food piled around the walls. The man was afraid at first, but Yeho didn't bother him, and he went toward that meat to get him some. The Yeho walked over and looked at the knife and said, Yeho, Yeho, a time or two. He cut it off a piece of the meat and he started eating it. Well, the man stepped over to the middle of the pit and took out his flint and built him up a fire. And the Yeho watched him and looked at the fire and at the flint and said, Yeho, Yeho again. The man put his meat on a stick, and briled him a nice piece and started eating it. The Yeho watched him and acted like he wanted a piece. The man cut it off a piece of the briled meat and reached it over. And the Yeho commenced to eatin' it up and smacking its lips and saying mm, Yeho, Yeho. Well, the man lived there with it a long time, "'and they got along all right. "'After so long, there was a young'un born to him, "'and it was half man and half yeho. "'And the yeho took such a liking to the man, "'it wouldn't let him leave. "'He got to wanting to get away and go back home. "'One day he slipped off and the yeho followed him "'and made him go back. "'Went on that way for a good while.' but he picked him a good time and slipped away. This time he got to the shore where there was a ship ready to sail. He got on the ship, and he looked, and he saw the Yeho coming with the young'un. It screamed and hollered for him to come back, and when it saw he wasn't going to come, why, it just tore the baby in two and held it out one half to him and said, Yeho! Yeho! He sailed on off. "'left it standing there. "'The version that Dr. Taylor refers to in my book, "'South from Hell for Sardin, "'is called The Origin of Man. "'Another version was given to me by this teller's grandson. "'It has the same title and contents, "'except that the Yeho has six children "'and tears them all in two "'and throws them after the embarked man. "'Another text, similar to the one given above, was accidentally erased from my tapes. The following text was recorded from Joe Couch, Appalachia, Virginia, in 1954. He had heard it from his people while he lived in Perry County, Kentucky. THE HAIRY WOMAN One time, was prowling in the wilderness, wandering about, kindly got lost, and so weak and hungry I couldn't go. "'When it began to get cool, I found a big cave and crawled back in there to get warm. "'Crawled back in and come upon a leaf bed, and I dozed off to sleep. "'I heard an awful racket coming into that cave, "'and something come in and crawled right over me and laid down like a big old bear. "'It was a hairy thing, and when it laid down, it went chomp, chomp, a chawn on something. "'I thought to myself— "'I'll see what it is and find out what it's eaten. "'I reached over, and a hairy-like woman was there eating chestnuts. "'Had about a half a bushel there. "'I got me a big handful of them and went to chewing on them, too. "'Well, in a few minutes she handed me over another big handful, "'and I eat chestnuts until I was kindly full and wasn't hungry any more.' "'directly she got up and took off and out of sight. "'Well, I stayed on there till next morning, "'and she come in with a young deer, "'brought it in, and with her big long fingernails "'she ripped its hide and skinned it, "'and then she sliced the good lean meat "'and handed me a bite to eat. "'I kindly slipped it behind me, "'afraid to eat it raw and afraid not to eat it, "'being she give it to me, She'd cut off big pieces of deer meat and eat it raw. Well, I laid back, and the other pieces she give me over as she'd eaten hers, she was going to see that I didn't starve. When she got gone again, I built up a little fire and briled my meat. After being hungry for two or three days, it was good cooked. Yes, buddy. She'd come in while I had a fire... she come in while I had my fire built, briling my meat, and she run right into that fire. She couldn't understand because it kindly burnt her a little. She jumped back and looked at me like she was going to run through me. <laughs> I said, Uh-oh, I'm going to get in trouble now. Well, it was cold and bad out, so I just stayed another night with her. She was a woman, but was right hairy all over. "'After several days I learned her how to brile meat "'and that fire would burn her. "'She got shy of the fire "'and got so she liked briled meat "'and wouldn't eat it raw any more. "'We went on through the winter that way. "'She would go out carrying deer and bear. "'So I lived there about two years "'and when we had a little kid, "'one side of it was hairy "'and the other side was slick.' I took a notion I'd leave there and go back home. I began to build me a boat to go away across the lake in. One time after I had left, I took a notion I'd slip back and see what she was doing. I went out to the edge of the cliff and looked down into the mountain, and it looked like two or three dozen of hairy people coming up the hill. They were all pressing her, and she would push them back. They wanted to come on up and come in. "'I was scared to death, afraid they's was going to kill me. "'She made them go back and wouldn't let them come up and interfere. "'Well, I took a notion to leave one day when my boat was ready. "'I told her one day I was going to leave. "'She followed me down to my boat and watched me get ready to go away. "'She was crying, wanting me to stay. "'I said, No, I'm tired of the jungles.' I'm going back to civilization again, going back. When she knew she wasn't going to keep me there, she just grabbed the little one and tore it right open with her nails, throwed me the hairy part, and she kept the slick side. That's the end of that story. This is the end of the story. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode